Binge heads, the pod awakens once more, this time exclusively on Spotify. That's right. You can find the complete binge mode Star Wars run, as well as our binge mode Game of Thrones, binge mode Harry Potter, and binge mode weekly seasons available to listen to for free, exclusively on Spotify. May the binge be with you. Binge Mode Star Wars is presented by State Farm. You know those days when it feels like problems just pop out of nowhere? The helpful folks at State Farm do. Like a fender bender when you're already late. Or a thief breaking into your home and making off with your new flat screen TV. Luckily, there are more than 19,000 agents who are there for you. Because when it comes to auto and home insurance, State Farm agents, like the Jedi, are ready to help. Find an agent today at statefarm.com. Master Qui-Gon, more to say of you? With your permission, my master, I have encountered a virgins in the Force. A virgins, you say? Located around a podcast? A boy. His cells have the highest concentration of midichlorians I have seen in a life form. It is possible he was conceived by the midichlorians. Binge mode contains adult content, you know. You can just tell us who fucked Shmi. It's okay. I don't presume to. But you do. Revealed, your opinion is. I request the boy be tested, Master. Oh, trained in spoiler warnings too, this podcast is... Finding him was the will of the Force. I have no doubt of that. Bring him before us, then. It's time for binge mode. How feel you? Cold, sir. Afraid, are you? No, sir. See through you? We can. Be mindful of your feelings. Your thoughts dwell on your mother. I miss her. Afraid to lose her, I think, hmm? What has that got to do with anything? Everything. Fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. I sense much fear in you. that. That's good. Oh boy, that feels right. And welcome to Binge Mode Star Wars! <sighs> Proudly, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Mallory Rubin. It's the first time I've ever said this out loud. Oh, here it is! Editor-in-chief! Boom, baby! <laughs> of the Ringer.com. EIC! Big EIC energy. <laughs> The force that binds the ringer together. Boy, just searching for balance, you know. Joining me today, now that he's acquired a pod and a game of chance, it's not the fastest pod ever built, but it is the deepest. Ringer senior creative, your Jedi master, Jason Concepcion. Mal, I didn't kill anyone you know for it. 
I need everyone Relieved. to leave because at long last, it's time for Binge Mode Star Wars, folks. You know, we like a extremely wide canon. Love a wide canon. Several parsecs wide. <laughs> you know, we like to explore a vast universe of content. That's what we're doing here. Yes. We're going to be talking about the Skywalker saga films, the anthology films, but also exploring numerous other facets of this galaxy far, mm -hmm. far away. We're going to be doing character studies on iconic Star Wars archetypes, yes. discussions of the Mandalorian television show once that launches on November 12th, chats about the comics, the merch, the iconography, all that and more leading up to the release of Star Wars Episode Nine: The Rise of Skywalker. Palpy back! Our good friend Sheev. Palpy back! <laughs> he never left on December 20th. Please head to the Outer Rim. Man, that sounds... <laughs> Interpret it as you will. I will. <laughs> Please head over to the Outer Rim, will you? With us by subscribing <laughs> to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us. Yes. Greed can be a powerful ally. And we want five stars for binge mode reviews. That's Give right. us those five stars. Give in to your fear <laughs> of what will happen to you if you don't give us the five stars. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore. Go ahead and join our Facebook group too, yeah. which is just for binge mode fans and which is an excellent place to share how Jar Jar's pearls of wisdom mm. changed your life. And please head to theringer.com slash shop to check out our brand new binge mode merch. Holds up even if you're pod racing against that shady fucker. So well, but here's my take. Anything goes in a pod race. It's fine. I think that's clear. Yeah. What do you think of Sebulba's pre-pod race routine where he's getting a mm, massage disgusting. on each end and he's got his ass nestled in it's what appears disgusting. to be a trophy that is functioning as a bidet. His ass, if you, there's a moment when he stands on his pod and waves to the crowd and yeah. his ass goes all the way up to like his neck. <laughs> it's disgusting. That's all. That's all I will say about Sebulba. I think hideous. Prediction. It's not all I you're going to say about Sebulba. <laughs> Last time on Binge Mode, we concluded, at least until the spinoff time, or should George R. R. Martin, the other George in our life, ever grace us oh. with the winds of winter? For George? now, we concluded our Binge Mode Game of Thrones run. And today, we're starting to dive deep. Into our Star Wars binge. As always, spoiler warning. We will be going deep on deep. details from 1999's highly anticipated and much maligned much episode blind. one, The Phantom Menace, as well as all of the rest of the films in the primary Star Wars universe, Clone Wars, Rebels, even Legends. Hashtag not canon. Not canon. So much is not canon now. All of it. We're taking all of it into account. So keep that in mind as you proceed. Now, take off your makeup. Yeah, how long is that going to take? Make sure your decoy's got her fit on because it's time to head to Naboo. Mal, remember, concentrate on the moment. Feel. Don't think. Trust your instincts. And trust the plot points, because before we dive deep, it's time to offer a brief refresher on what actually happens in 1999's A Phantom Menace by heading to a podcast to you far, far away and queuing up the opening crawl. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, Tex 
Pieces. Oh, it's just what everyone was waiting for. It's a movie for kids about taxes. Unhappy with taxes on their shipping routes. Dad's what? What's taxes? The Trade Federation, a conglomerate of planetary trading interests controlled by the Nemoidians, places a blockade. Or in their words, a blockade. (laughs) Very tough. Very, very tough to start the movie that way. Tough. Or to put that anywhere in the movie, really. Around the planet Naboo. To resolve the situation, the Supreme Chancellor of the deadlocked Galactic Senate sends two Jedi. Qui-Gon Jinn. And his apprentice, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You might know him as Ben. Ben! (laughs) I wonder if he means Ben Kenobi. I wonder if that's the guy. He was much cooler when he was a kid. He had like this punk rock little braid that he rocked. (laughs) To negotiate on the Federation ship. The Federation and its leader, Viceroy Newt Gunray, Mm. are secretly working with Darth Sidious, who you may know better as Senator Sheev Palpatine, a.k.a. Palpy. Palps. Palps is engineering the crisis to place himself at the head of the Senate. And Palpy urges the Federation to kill the Jedi and begin the invasion of Naboo. The Jedi escape. They make their way to Naboo where they meet the bumbling. Exiled for bumbling, apparently. Gungan exile. Jar Jar Binks. He's clumsy. They travel with him to the Gungan city. Oda Gunga. The secret city under the sea. Beautiful, actually. Quite Quite pretty. It's like a great place to spend a couple days. Mm-hmm. Your little bubble pod. Sure. With Boss Nos. Boss Nos. Why not? And later, travel through the planet core with Jar Jar as guide, which basically amounts to Qui-Gon concussing him and then Jar Jar doing nothing. <laughs> they head to Naboo to assist Queen Amidala against her Federation foe. The Jedi... Queen Amidala and Jar Jar flee Naboo, hoping to make it to the galactic capital of Coruscant, but their ship takes damage. That ship sucks. Their ship takes damage, and they only escape because of the bravery of astromech droid R2-D2. They make landing on Tatooine. Ever heard of it? Ever heard of it? (laughs) An out-of-the-way desert planet, notorious for gangster activity, for repairs. I wonder what they might find on Tatooine. Gosh, it's... Crazy to think. <laughs> At a junk trader shop run by Watto. Yeah. <laughs> a toy Darian with a chin that looks like a scrotum with about two and a half weeks of hair growth after some self-grooming. I think a little more than two. Three and a half weeks? Sure. Mileage may vary. Uh, lick my chin, Qui-Gon. Yeah. <laughs> Qui-Gon's there. Amidala disguised as... The handmaiden Padme at this point there. And here they meet young Anakin Skywalker. Are you an angel? (laughs) (laughs) Oh boy. Great pickup line from Anakin. He's got the moves even at nine. Dear sweet Annie is a slave and also a tech prodigy. Cue immediately the problematic flirting here. It's very tough. Now, we should say right away that Padme is supposed to be 14. Sure. That's not really clear when you're watching the movie. I mean, there's also the issue that, like, Annie is a slave. Yes. And that's a whole nother thing. Flirting with a child slave is tough at any age. 
Anakin <laughs> takes him right back to his home. Come home Come with home me. with me. Where they meet his mother, Shmi, who sadly is also a slave. Qui-Gon, interested though. Your grace. He's very He interested. was interested. <laughs> we'll get into that in a bit. <laughs> and Anakin's unfinished protocol droid, C-3PO. I call him dick out C-3PO. <laughs> My box is showing. <laughs> Qui-Gon discovers that Anakin is unusually strong with the force. To raise money for repairs to the ship, Ani offers to enter a pod race using a speeder of his own design. Jin makes a side bet with Watto for Ani's freedom. Well, Anakin wins the race. Yeah, he does. Says his goodbye to Shmi and to C-3PO. But on the way to the ship, they're attacked by Darth Maul, mm-hmm. Palpy's apprentice. Our heroes get away, now aware of a new threat. On Coruscant, Qui-Gon informs the Jedi Council. Here we are with the Jedi Council at long last. There are Jedi, like more than two exiled ones, I alive. I love it. Tell us all about the Sith and his belief that Anakin Skywalker is the Jedi of prophecy, the chosen one destined to bring balance to the Force. This is quite a download. Busy meeting, and they're basically like, nah. Yeah, it's like, uh, let's pump the brakes on that. You had uh, another task you were supposed to complete. Can we talk about that? Queen Amidala charges the Trade Federation with acts of illegal war in front of the Senate. The Sheev puppeteering going on here. Frustrated with the bureaucracy and at Palpy's not-so-subtle urging. He's literally doing evil whispers in her ear. Great. It's great. There you see the real power behind the Senate. I wonder if he could be the emperor. She calls for a vote of no confidence in the Supreme Chancellor and resolves to return to Naboo. Jin presents Anakin to the Jedi Council. He would like to take the boy on as his Padawan, but Yoda has a few objections. He's too old. Ages. And anyway, Obi-Wan is your Padawan. Master Yoda is like, hey, let's level set here. Why don't you accompany Amidala back to Naboo and do the job that you were set out to do at the beginning of this movie? Stop with all this nonsense. The queen hatches a plan. To use this is great the Gungan army in a trademark alliance, a, bridging two peoples. This is a historic alliance between two peoples who have, who knows, centuries of mistrust between them. And the first act of that alliance on the Naboo side is for the queen to go, why don't you sacrifice your entire army? <laughs> so I can run down the hall. What do you say? <laughs> Boss Nass is like, let's do it. <laughs> Her goal, capture the Viceroy and the Siege of Naboo. That's right. And prove the Federation's crimes to the galaxy. As the battle unfolds, Darth Maul strikes. And he kills our friend Qui-Gon Jinn. The sound of Darth Vader breathing and pitifully shouting. For Qui-Gon Jinn. However, Darth Maul is eventually defeated by Obi-Wan. Mm-hmm. Queen Amidala and her team capture the Viceroy and in space. Anakin accidentally, but likely with the help of the Force, destroys the Trade Federation control ship, causing its entire droid army to lose Wi-Fi and go offline. The battle is over. No hotspot. That's it. No backup for those guys. There's no backup. If they're not <laughs> online, they're not doing anything. <laughs> that ship I like, by the way. The donut? Yeah. It looks like the donut with the munchkin still in the middle. 
Yeah, I like it. And it makes me hungry. <laughs> Back on Coruscant. Palpy. Hanging out in his velvet robes. This guy is having the best time. <laughs> the best time. No one's having a better time Love's than Palpy. being secretly evil. Secret, secretly, secretly evil. evil. <laughs> no one is having a better time than Chief Palp. Just as planned, folks, he's been named Chancellor. Obi-Wan, meanwhile, becomes a full-fledged Jedi. He's an apprentice no more, but he has one. He takes on Anakin as his Padawan learner, honoring his promise to Qui-Gon. Yoda, meanwhile, finally, finally, agrees that the Sith have returned. Unbelievable. And this will be a theme of the prequels and indeed the entire saga. In fairness, Yoda, he, the dude is like 800-something at this point, a little senile. He's just lost it a little bit. Doesn't have his fastball the way he used to. What's Mace Windu's excuse? I don't know, Mace. That's a very <laughs> tough one. Mace was always more of the sword guy anyway. Yes. And the Sith who have returned, right. what do we learn? There must Always be two. That's right. But who was Maul? The apprentice or the master? Who can say? Certainly no one on the Jedi Council. On to episode two. Yes. But first we have like two hours of episode one talk. Jason? Yes! We can't stop change any more than you can stop the suns from setting. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. And indeed, life's big idea. Yeah. So let's search our feelings. Use the force. The defining theme of this episode is origins. Before we get to what actually happens in the movie, to Mm -hmm. discussing the origins that we see unfold in the plot itself, let's start with the origin in a meta sense of the prequel trilogy, the anticipation, the ensuing response, and the origin of the fan division that has now in many ways spanned decades, not only for Star Wars, but for culture at large. Qui-Gon says to Obi-Wan, there's always a bigger fish, as they are making their way through the planet core of Naboo. And he is, listen, he's literally talking about a bigger fish. A very, very (laughs) large fish. Don't want to overstate the poetry. He's literally talking about a giant fish. But the statement, of course, also has symbolic and thematic resonance. You start somewhere. You take yes. your first step. And that first step takes you, just as we'll hear Obi-Wan say one day, a larger Luke, world. into a larger world. This is both the great gift and the burden of the world that George Lucas constructed and the world that he keeps returning to and attempting to expand here with the prequel trilogies, beginning with episode one, The Phantom Menace. Working title of this movie was fittingly The Beginning. Indeed. At least for a time. And that's where George wanted to take the fans on the heels of his iconic original trilogy, the movies that really remade the way we think about movies and the way we perceive Hollywood blockbusters. He wanted to show you how the iconic villain, perhaps the most iconic villain in history, became what he was. A New Hope, released in May 1977, Empire Strikes Back, May 1980, Return of the Jedi, 83. It is not hyperbolic to say that fan anticipation for 1999's Phantom Menace was, like, insane. David Camp in Vanity Fair at the time has a great quote. He called it, he said the movie had a Garbo-like mystique and that it was, quote, the most craved film ever. And I think that's fair Fair. to say. You know, this is, like, a point in time where— 
I remember personally being like, I can't believe that these movies are coming back. So let's actually yeah. spend a minute orienting the listeners with our personal Star Wars origin stories. How did you... How did you come to be a Star Wars fan? Was it with Phantom Menace? Were you a fan of the original movies before that? When did you really get into it? I watched them on VHS, the original trilogies on VHS as a kid. I have a very vibrant memory of a blizzard that hit my neighborhood and laying in the snow for like hours, mm-hmm. pretending to be Luke. On Hoth? On Hoth. Incredible. Seeing, ben, <laughs> seeing Force Ghost Ben Kenobi and hearing him. And I was just like crawling across the lawn going, Ben, Ben. (laughs) And I absolutely love them. I had the action figures. I had the little, like, the Dagobah toy with the Mm -hmm. little foam swamp that you could, like, suck Luke and Yoda and stuff into. It had, like, a little lever that you could lift rocks with. I was a big-time Star Wars freak. What about you? When you say you had a toy that you could suck Luke with, what do you mean? I mean, you could literally <laughs> suck his dick. No. Like Leia. <laughs> what do you think he meant when he Jeff was going Jeff to Elvin. Tashi Station for some power converters? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Indeed. Hand job. That's what I think he meant. Hello. Yeah. Uh, my personal origin story with Star Wars is that in the run-up to the Phantom Menace release, they re-released the original trilogy in That's the right. theaters. And my dad took me to the... I'm trying to remember if it was the Rotunda or the Charles Theater in downtown, but it was in downtown Baltimore. And we went and saw all three movies and I was riveted, like transported. And I was still young enough that it felt like the kind of quintessential fantasy story awakening that you get to experience when you're a kid and you literally think like you're like broom boy who will meet much later in movies down the road. Can that be me one day? Could I be a Jedi? But I was also old enough that I think I was able to grasp some of the bigger themes. And I was so hyped for this movie. So hyped for this movie. I was, it was honestly shocking when they, like, this was, you forget how unprecedented this was to be like, here's the biggest movie franchise of all time. And now we're going to do it again. But as a prequel, we're not going to tell you what happened after. We're going to tell you what happened before. Yes. It was mind-blowing that this was going to happen. Shocking. There was no mystery about what the intent was. Like, it was marketed the entire way as Anakin's origin story. That poster, remember the iconic poster of little young Anakin in front of the hut on Tatooine and his shadow cast behind him and the shadow is Vader. And it's like, I still get a chill when I look at that poster today, even though I've since seen this movie. (laughs) The poster is better than the movie. (laughs) You know, we should say, actually, you can't really talk about Phantom Menace without being critical. You can't. You can't. But we love Star Wars. Love it. This is a celebration of a thing we love. The prequels, which, again, we do kind of ride for, actually. I think probably more than most. I mean, listen, Revenge of the Sith. Genuinely good movie. I ride for Revenge of the Sith. It's pretty good. Attack of the Clones. Tough. Anthony Lane of The New Yorker, who we will mention in a bit, has a comment about Revenge of the Sith that I am now paraphrasing, but it's something like calling Revenge of the Sith the best (laughs) prequel is like saying dying is better than crucifixion. Well, again, I mean, it is. Definitely is. Yes. You mentioned Anthony Lane, so let's talk about the critical reception that this movie received and then get to the the fan reception in a second. So 53% on Rotten Tomatoes, which... 
you know, on the one hand means nothing and on the other hand is ultimately reflective of what the mass response was. Interestingly, there could sometimes be with these big blockbusters a disparity between the critical score and the audience score. Yeah. Not so in this Not case. Not the case. Very much the same, 59% for audiences. And there are two... I think genuinely thought-provoking snippets of criticism that kind of are representative of the two pools. Mm -hmm. One of them came from Anthony Lane, who said in The New Yorker, A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, people made movies with people in them, and some (laughs) of those movies made sense. Then something happened, and the people started to vanish from the movies, along with most of the sense. For a while, the spectacle was fun to observe, but slowly the pictures tipped into insanity, or at any rate, into the hypnotically bad. The joke was that the number of viewers willing to submit to such hypnosis went not down, but through the roof. Historians of this phenomenon are now agreed that the change became irrevocable shortly before the end of the second millennium with a George Lucas film entitled Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. The Phantom Menace is at once childishly unknowing and rotten with cynicism. I would call it the disappointment of the decade, except that, (laughs) along with many other people, I had a sneaking fear that it would turn out this way. What is this? Crap. Say it out loud. Crap. Holy shit, that is savage. Strong, but honestly, it's pretty fair. I have a take, which I will expound on in a bit, which is it's good that The Phantom Menace is bad. But let's continue. Okay, so the opposite end of the spectrum comes from rewatchables staple Roger D. Sean Fennessy cover your ears immediately (laughs) who gave it 3.5 out out of 4 stars and said quote not bad not bad at all if it were the first Star Wars movie the Phantom Menace would be hailed as a visionary breakthrough I think this is a really interesting point honestly wait so wait yes if this movie came out in 1977 I agreed it would be like a it would be a visionary masterpiece. Not, but, well, okay. Hold that thought for a second. Sure. I'll finish the quote and come back to that. But this is the fourth movie of the famous series, and we think we know the territory. Many of the early reviews have been blasé, paying lip service to the visuals and wondering why the characters aren't better developed. How quickly do we grow accustomed to wonders? That's a great, that's a great line and a great question. He loses me here, though. I am reminded of the Isaac Asimov story in Nightfall. Literally one of the maybe seven most important (laughs) essential works of science fiction of all time. So you lose me here a bit, Raj. But about the planet where the stars were visible only once in a thousand years. So awesome was the sight that it drove men mad. We who can see the stars every night glance up casually at the cosmos and then quickly down again, searching for a dairy queen. (laughs) So... His point is, to get back to what you were saying about 77, I think less about the moment in time and more about the fact that we had just gotten to the point as consumers where we said, we know what Star Wars is and we know what we're entitled to and we want it to be better and more. And that if this had been, regardless of the year it came into our lives, our first exposure to this world, these characters, these ideas, and this type of storytelling, we would have been mesmerized. And I wonder if that's true. To an I don't fully disagree, but here is where I part with Ebert. We kind of— You don't uh, like Dairy Queen? No, I, <laughs> I love Dairy Queen. I think we—you know, like Star Wars <laughs> is such a, a part of the fabric of our culture that we really underestimate the unbelievable charm and intoxicating chemistry of the original cast. Yes. Harrison Ford, Harrison folks. Ford, Mark Hamill, and Carrie Fisher had a smirking— hilarious, smoldering chemistry that, like, leapt off the screen. Yeah, it's true. Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher had that Lannister siblings who want a bone chemistry. I mean, there was— And it worked. It was, like, right on the edge of 
are they making fun of this? Are they having fun? Like, they just seemed like they were having the most fun. There's nothing as cool as Han Solo shooting the communicator on the Death Star and shrugging. Mm -hmm. Like, there's nothing that charming in this at all. And that's where I... Mm -hmm. Apart from Ebert. I, there, I there's just that. nothing that rises to the level of those performances in this movie. And at a, all. a lot of that is because it seems to be tech first instead of charm first. Like to the point about, to the line here about wonder, how quickly we grow accustomed to wonders, you could, and this might be uncharitable, you could apply that to the creator. Right, You could apply that to George Lucas and say, did he become accustomed with his own wonders and less interested in exploring the actual mythology. We're going to spend a lot of time later talking about midichlorians. Hold that thought. The Force fucked Anakin's mom. But we'll return to that later. I mean, it was late at night <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a bar on Tatooine. Boy, was it. Cantina. But did he become less interested in that and more interested in saying, I can make a different type of movie in making a movie as opposed to telling a story. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways, this is an experimental film. The tech Mm -hmm. was experimental. No one had ever tried CGI to this level before. Mm -hmm. And clearly Lucas was intoxicated and felt unleashed by the possibilities of this tech to kind of like unmoor him from having to depend on sets and actors and all these kind of different things. His, His imagination could really run wild. He literally had to try to find a lens that could film the movie that he wanted to make. It didn't exist. And that's awe-inspiring at times, but it's not necessarily the driving principle that's going to lead you to the best story or the most cohesive plot. And that certainly seems to be how many diehard Star Wars fans felt. Some loved it. Some, yes. Do you know any? Never met one, Okay, honestly. How about you? (laughs) Not that I remember. There must be one. I have some friends who will defend it. Sure. But with reservations, Mm -hmm. many, 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 though, hated it. Lamented, among other things, the extremely detailed bureaucratic focus, which is, it's weird. It's weird on the one hand for Lucas, uh, one of his defenses of, of the movie and why people didn't accept it was like, well, it's for kids. On the other hand, it's, as we mentioned in the top of this pod, it's for kids, but it's also based on like this minutia of like, Yes. Galactic trade law. We're going to come back to that a little bit later at the end of our discussion about the big idea of the movie. And I think there are ways to rationalize that choice and find things about it that are interesting. But on the surface, it's a very tough sell. The sudden and for many unasked for (laughs) reveal of the midichlorians as a biological basis for force sensitivity and the abilities that Jedis possess. And... Characters and plot points that seemed driven by a desire to sell toys Uh and call back to the original trilogy in ways that kind of didn't make sense. And then there was the perceived by many racial stereotypes of some of the alien characters Uh in this movie. I will say that I will say that I personally perceive them. I perceive them as well. There are three big ones here. You want to walk us through them? The Nemoidians who run the Trade Federation certainly project Asianness. As I mentioned earlier, one of the first things the Viceroy says is, uh, as you know, a blockade is completely legal. And yeah, that's uh, yeah, I'm feeling that as an Asian person. Yeah. The way he says, yes, of course, right at the top of the movie. right away. Man, open up the film like that is 
tough. Very tough. Then there is Jar Jar and the Gungans. We are going to do an entire Jar Jar pod, folks. That's coming up. (laughs) Stay tuned for the deep dive you didn't know you always wanted on your least favorite Star Wars character. That's going to be one of our character studies. Voted consistently the worst Star Wars character in the canon. But he is fascinating. And so we're going to probably talk about him less today than you might be expecting. But again, we will return to him uh, some length in mere days. And then there is our good friend Watto, the junk shop proprietor who has a hook nose and uh, really cares about money. (laughs) What else is there to say? Uh, In a piece for Salon in 2000, uh, then-grad student Alinda Wheat related quotes from Lucas when he was asked about these perceived stereotypes. Quote, How in any credible way could you take an orange amphibian and say that this was a racial stereotype for African Americans, he asked. When I mentioned Jar Jar's Caribbean patois, he simply cut me off. Just because somebody has an accent doesn't make them a stereotype of a particular kind of thing. Although, I would point out that Lucas does mention that Jar Jar's particular way of speaking, the Gungan way of speaking, is based on a, quote, Pidkin, and one of the influences he notes is Caribbean. Mm -hmm. Um, Lucas contended the media, quote, turned it into a whole thing about the film was racist, anti-Semitic, and misogynist. Everything else they could think of, critics aren't creators, they're destroyers, and I don't think any creative person will ever argue with me about that. Honestly, incredible. (laughs) What a thing to say out loud. He continues, quote, <laughs> most of them that I've met are reasonably dim-witted. <laughs> oh, my God. This is, this is honestly astonishing stuff for George. When anybody gives me a note on anything that I write <laughs> here at The Rigor, this, most of them that I've met are reasonably dim-witted. I mean, they aren't like the rest of us. Wow. They don't have any knowledge of anything. They certainly don't know anything about history. They don't know anything about film. They don't know anything about politics. They don't know anything about sociology or psychology or anything. I mean, it's like you get into a conversation with them and it's hard to find a subject they can actually converse on. George. Tough look for my guy. (laughs) Dial it down, George. (laughs) Dial it back. Oh my Lord. Wow. Wow. And now I will give you my take. Mm -hmm. It's good that the Phantom Menace is bad. Let's hear it. Lay it out for us. Um, Listen, I certainly perceive these stereotypes. I think a trap we can fall into is well, clearly George is not racist and did not mean to depict these characters in a negative racial way. Of course, getting into intent is like a trap that you will never get out of because we can't know what's in a person's mind. All you can say is, yeah, that seems like a racial stereotype to me. Now, if this movie had been gangbusters, great. Mm -hmm. But it's also worth saying there are plenty of other things that make the movie bad in people's minds. Oh, that's true. Right? Plenty of other things. But that's why I'm glad that those other things happened because if they hadn't and this movie had been great with these performances, Mm -hmm. they'd be with us to this day. But Hmm. because of the vicious acid response of the van base to basically every facet of this film, they had to change the things they could change, and Jar Jar is barely seen in the rest of the trilogy. We right. see him for a moment. Senator Jar Jar comes. Senator Jar Jar, <laughs> what a glow up for my guy. Oh, man. Shouts to you. Uh, the Nemoidians retreat from the scene. We see them around a couple of tables of yes. bad guys. Anakin will slaughter them. <laughs> Absolutely. Without mercy. With no mercy Later. will slaughter them. Uh, and Watto, you know, uh, 
goodbye and I hope you have a great life. So I'm glad that this movie is bad because if not, this would have been rewarded and we would have seen this stuff again. And on that note, yeah, be sure to tune in for our Jar Jar specific podcast. It really is a fact. He's a fascinating. <laughs> it character. is going to be interesting. So there's also the matter of the film's legacy, to your point, mm. beyond the moment in time in which it existed, how That's that right. legacy has changed. Both of them how people think of the movie as a standalone product, how they think of its place in the Star Wars universe. And George Lucas will often say, you can't just think about the movie as a standalone movie. Right. You have to think about it as Chapters. one chapter yeah. in this series. Okay, fair. You'd still like it to stand on its own effectively, but fair. There's also the matter of how The Phantom Menace and the Star Wars prequel trilogy changed the nature of how consumers and studios like producers too, thought about IP. Like how this ushered a in a new era of IP exploration and we are in that era still. Yes, We are in that era more deeply than ever. It was, and I think getting back to that, the thing we were talking about previously when I was like, it was mind blowing to me that this would happen. And I think there was a light, it was a light bulb moment for the industry too, where it's like, oh, right. we can go back here. Mm-hmm. It's not over, right? We can keep selling tickets to this to stories based in this world. Yes, and absolutely, you can. Here we are with Fantastic Beasts movies underway, and a it's not the same problem, but problems developing there as you go back. Twenty and plus Marvel movies. All the mar- what's in development now for a world of ice and fire? Yeah, we're going back to prequels. Back prequels, like this is the currency now of pop culture. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, you can trace that back to here. And hopefully many of the lessons that have been learned are ones that will lead to better products in the future. But not always. We also, again, as we talked about a few minutes ago, have the legacy of George Lucas and how he thought about film in the digital age and the kind of experimenting that he wanted to do. And in that sense, he, he... unambiguously as a visionary. The, oh, there's no question. the changes that he made, the impact that he made on how movies were made, how they were constructed, and the kinds of limits that filmmakers pushed themselves to to try to bring you something that literally by the definition of the innovation behind it you had yeah. never seen before is a gift to moviegoers yeah. everywhere. It really is. He has this great quote on one of the bonus features on the DVD, and I guess that's something else we should say at some point here. It's like, you might be watching a different version of the movie than us. That's right. always something you have to keep in mind with Star Wars is that oh, for sure. re-released and re-edited and special editions and collector's editions. And is your Yoda on Phantom Menace a puppet or is he CGI Yoda inserted back in anew? But one of the things that George Lucas said in the extra called George Lucas on the Digital Revolution, which is a fascinating watch, also serves in addition to just being a commentary on how he thought about Phantom Menace as a commentary on processing this movie and its role in the larger canon. He said, quote, there's a social drag on how fast you can take an idea and turn it into a reality that actually is part of the social system. It takes about 10 years for people to kind of get their head around it Mm. from the point where it's introduced to the point where they accept it. And then in another feature right on the disc, he says... This was from a clip of him from 94 before the movie was even made. There's no guarantee that you're going to be able to pull it off at all. So you can kind of feel the weight, but also the real thrill of the experimental spirit that drove him that push-pull. Are people going to like what I do? Are they going to accept what I do? Are they they going to want what I do? Well, I don't really care because I want to give it to them anyway. That's really important, I think. That's important context for Lucas's response to the response. Yes. Because I think the thing that we should keep in mind is that when Lucas was making A New Hope, Mm -hmm. 
everyone told him it was bad. His cast was like, George, this dialogue doesn't make any sense. His cinematographer was feuding about it with him about what was possible and what could be shot. No one understood the vision he had. He took a first cut of the reel and showed it to like his friends, Steven Spielberg mm-hmm. and Brian De Palma, all these other directors. Brian De Palma was like, this is garbage. <laughs> the only one who believed in it was George Lucas. The only yes. one. And Look at what has happened. It's definitely so, not an accident that the keep that in mind. key theme, yeah. one of the pillars of the story that he created is trust your instincts. Right. Search your feelings. Yes. Look inward great, to guide the decisions that you make. Point. Let's talk about the actual movie. Yes. Let's talk about Anakin Skywalker. Little Annie. I love him. Fun fact. I was dating a gentleman named Andrew over the course of the later prequels. Revenge Are you of the an Sith. angel, Mal? <laughs> Revenge of the Sith time. And started calling him Annie and he uh, absolutely loathed it. Tough look for my guy. Loathed it. It was sweet. Anyway, let's talk yeah. about Annie and villain origin stories. Nothing we like more I love than a villain origin story. They're One so of interesting. our favorites. Absolutely interesting. We are, of course, talking about Darth Vader, probably the most iconic film villain of all time, and also the most efficient. You can go back and look at his screen time through the original trilogy. No! <laughs> and Duff. you're talking about a, a evil presence, the embodiment of menace, uh-huh. who is in these movies for like 12 minutes, 15 minutes, uh-huh. like barely at all, right. and whose very outline is recognizable. Oh, yeah. The shape of him. The sound of him. It's an incredible achievement in film. The way the light gleams off his head. So important. All of these tiny things are instantly associated with him and recognizable from him. You fear him so fully. You're in awe of him. You find yourself, of course, won over to his side yeah. at the end of Jedi. But what do you never really get? any information. How does this person, how did he get about how this happened? And so Um, that's what this trilogy ultimately is about. There's an oral history about the Phantom Menace on StarWars.com. In it, Lucas says, the original idea for Star Wars was one movie about the tragedy of Darth Vader. Mm -hmm. But as the story grew, it ended up being three movies and the backstory was never explained. I decided that it would be important to finish it off and do the backstory because things that I thought would be self-evident about the story, the audience didn't get. And this, by the way, a theme. Yes. (laughs) Over the 10 years after Return of the Jedi, I realized people misunderstood a lot, such as where Anakin came from. So it was a way of finishing the whole thing off. The commentary on this movie, uh, the director's commentary, is really interesting because you really get an appreciation for just how much work and thought went into this movie Uh that honestly is pretty bad. Like, a lot of people, including Lucas himself, toiled and really worked at the bleeding edge of technology to make. And I think one of the one of the comments that's really stuck with me when we first meet Anakin in the director's commentary, Lucas says, you know, I wanted him to be, I'm paraphrasing now, I wanted him to be sweet and just Positive. absolutely innocent yes. because I didn't want to do that kind of stereotypical thing where there's some kind of hint of malice in the child who is then going to become the villain. And I thought that was so interesting and so evident as the thing that he was going for in this movie. Yeah, we're going to, you know, obviously we're going to go beat by beat here, not only through this movie, but the ensuing prequel movies about what actually happens in Anakin Skywalker's life that leads him to 
not only to make the turn to the dark side, but to be susceptible to being seduced by the dark side in the first place. And one of those things is ultimately that he actually has the capacity for love and that he has a lot of love in his heart and that his desire to protect the people that he loves is what leads to much of this. That is a fascinating contrast to some of the other arch villains that you would prop up along with Darth Vader as these iconic signature villains across culture. You know, let's just very quickly compare and contrast and sure we'll return to these uh-huh. comparisons as we go here, but to two of our other favorite stories, the other things we've focused on in this podcast, Game of Thrones and Harry Potter. One of the reasons that people, and spoilers, obviously, one of the th- reasons that people were so frustrated with the final season of Game of Thrones is because you had so many people who were so desperate to understand what the Night King wanted, yeah. what the White Walkers were really after, what the motivation was. Well, you can complain about any number of things about these movies, the Star Wars prequels. You cannot leave them saying you don't understand Anakin Skywalker's motivation. You can't. You can't. That is actually quite effectively conveyed. Harry Potter. I think we agree and have many, not only minutes, but hours of podcasting on the record. Hours. Hours Folks, and hours and hours and hours. About our absolute bone soul deep love for and admiration of Half-Blood Prince, the sixth book in that series, in large part because of the glimpse it gave us to how Tom Riddle became Voldemort. But again, as a point of contrast, you think of one of our favorite chapters, The Secret Riddle, Mm. where we go to the orphanage and we meet young Tom Riddle, this boy who looks at his own hands and says, always, right? He wants to be different. He wants to be special. So does Anakin. But Tom Riddle is already torturing people. He's already shown this great capacity to hurt and to inflict pain and damage. He's a thief. He's a bully. He's someone who enjoys pain. Because he hasn't. Inflicted on other people. Had access to love. And it's that thing that Lucas talks about in the commentary that he was trying to avoid was, I'm creating this great villain. I don't want there to be any hint of menace or evil in the child who becomes the villain. What a contrast to Tom Riddle. I think that while he has said that and achieved that, there are, if not hints of evil, at least hints of conflict. Yeah. The choices that Anakin will have to make, and we're going to get into some of them now. So Anakin, (laughs) this is one of the indictments of the movie. He enters the movie more than 30 minutes in. I think there's a case to be made. We're going to talk a little bit later about some of the, uh, the fan cuts of the film. Yeah. The middle hour of Phantom Menace is good. It's when you have to watch the first 32 minutes <laughs> and the last 30-ish minutes, with the exception of the lightsaber duel, which is fun, that it's like, whoa, this yeah. is pretty tough. Now, there's plenty of tough stuff in the middle. Midichlorian's looking at you. But at the end of the day, getting access to who Anakin is and to what his life was like is pretty compelling. When we first meet him, It's because Qui-Gon, Obi-Wan, Amidala, Padme have landed on Tatooine. Obviously, this is the planet where in A New Hope we are first introduced to Luke Skywalker. The ship, the shit ship we talked about earlier that was meant to take them to Curse. I think the ship is fine. I don't love it. I don't hate it. I just am indifferent towards it. Hmm. Anakin, like his son Luke, years from now in the canonical story and years before in our lives as people watching the story unfold, is just a boy on a desert planet in the Outer Rim lamenting his existence and his remove from all of these adventures that he imagines are unfolding across the galaxy that he wants to be able to have access to. 
but Anakin is different from Luke in a number of ways. For one, he is enslaved. Yes. Whereas Luke had freedom of movement, was brought up not by his parents, but certainly in, a, in an environment where he could experience love and some freedom. Um, the moisture farm with Uncle Owen. Uncle Owen! Um, it's interesting because Luke, he, he would say he wasn't free, right? He would say, oh, I, I don't have the ability to go do the thing I want to do and live the life I want to leave. And then you contrast it with the absence of actual, literal freedom, and that's I, notable. I think that's an important theme mirrored here between father and son, both yearning for freedom. Uh-huh. Luke just felt like the entire galaxy was passing him by. There's uh-huh. this exciting war on, there's this rebellion. It's all happening in different parts of the galaxy, far from where he is. He's trapped on this dusty backwater, moisture farming. His life's passing him by. Anakin, meanwhile, is actually not free. Yes. He's toiling for no pay, forced to do the bidding of Watto, who's a total dick. His only joy is pod racing, which is, like, mm-hmm. actually lethal. And building C-3PO. And building C-3PO, who, can we give this guy, like, some shorts or something? What do you think the pod racing mortality rate is? It's huge. Are we at, like, 87% here? It's insane that nobody died in this, the race in this movie. I'm going to say, like, 13 people died. There's sand people, like, sniping at you, and that's not even the in the top five of the dangerous things that happens during that race. If something explodes, you can just hide in Sebulba's ass. (laughs) It goes all the way up, folks. Um, Meeting Anakin, one of the first things we realize is that he loves his mom and he absolutely craves a human connection. And that- That's a real bond. Ironically, and I think one of the- best parts of this character is that is the thing that is his downfall. Mm-hmm. He That's the tragedy. He wants to be loved, loves his mother, eventually grows to love Padme, and that is the an lever. Angel. Are you an angel? <laughs> that is the lever which Palpy will use to turn him to the dark side. Now, let's talk about Padme, his eventual secret wife. In actual canon, he is nine. Yes, and she's 14. When you're watching the movie, it's like he looks eight and she looks 40. <laughs> I, I love Natalie Portman. She looks great, but she does not look 14. Um, <laughs> their flirting is extremely problematic that this happens right away. There's an early exchange, which is um, reveals a lot about these characters. Padme says, you're a slave. I'm a person and my name is Anakin. Uh-huh. I thought, like, actually a really affecting line. You know, like, Lucas can get um, criticized for his dialogue. I thought that was good. In many ways, Anakin's kind of rejection of the life he's leading will be mirrored in his eventual rejection of the rules and the strictures of the Jedi Order. He wants freedom. He wants to make his own choices, wants to make his own life, wants to just kind of, like, be happy with Padme and build a safe world for them. And it's these perceived threats all around him that drive him to the dark side. I think about that exact idea when he proclaims so proudly that he wants to be a pilot because that is an idea that we hear from a lot of different characters, including, obviously, Luke, his child, also Han. Why? Yeah. Why of all the things that any of those people could want to be, and of course, obviously, Anakin also, you know, wants to be a Jedi. Why a pilot? Because what does flight represent? It represents 
agency, the ability to literally go anywhere and do anything and to exert some control over your own life. And Anakin in this moment and so many of the characters in this story, Ray, all of these people that we'll meet, don't feel like they have access to that very basic right of personhood, which is I get to decide what I'm going to do today, tomorrow, and the next day. I'm going to decide how I want to live my life. And soaring out into the stars, into the sky, you know, there's that moment later in the film when Anakin will look up and say, I'm going to go to all of those planets. I'm going to go to all of them. Like that compulsion to explore is stemming fully from the desire to not be tethered to the life that someone else told you you had to have. But that's the irony because the Jedi are that path to freedom for him but ultimately end up representing just another kind of trap. More strictures. Uh, Let's talk pod racing. I'm struck by how much Lucas loves the theme of childhood yearning and an expression of freedom through vehicles. Uh Um, His first major motion picture was American Graffiti. Great movie. Great movie. Set in the early 60s in Modesto about teens kind of out on the town. Cruising for cheeseburgers. Cruising for cheeseburgers. And that kind of like car culture is Uh evident through every Star Wars movie. There's always tinkering with the car, getting under the hood, rearranging the wires. You know, there's like multiple, numerous scenes of Anakin with Jar Jar's help working on his pod racer. That is a theme that Lucas returns to again and again and again. Uh Um, He tells Qui-Gon that he's the only human capable of performing in these races. And that's an early indication of his force sensitivity. His reflexes are just like that. He can just perceive things before they're going to happen and react to them in an instant. And that even by Jedi standards, he is exceptional. Yeah. You must have Jedi reflexes if you race pods, Qui-Gon helpfully says. (laughs) There are a lot of lines like that in the movie where it's like, yeah, we got it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. We got it. We got it. There's also this moment where Anakin, we'll get back to the actual pod race Mm -hmm. soon, where Anakin tells Qui-Gon that he had this dream. This dream that he was a Jedi and that he returned to Tatooine and freed all of the slaves. In episode two, Attack of the Clones, Anakin will return to Tatooine to free his mother from captivity after he started having these dreams about her. But in the process, she dies and he slaughters legions. Not just the men. The women. But the women. The children. The children. (laughs) Anakin killing kids. Bit of a recurring pattern. Yeah. The younglings. Oh, God. (laughs) He learns early. This conversation here is one of the origins for us understanding this as well as for him to believe in his own dreams, that his dreams are prophetic. He does become a Jedi. And later when he dreams of his mother in distress, he will find her in that exact state. And so, of course, in Revenge of the Sith, when he's dreaming of Padme dying in childbirth, he responds exactly in the fashion that he does because he has been trained from this moment in time when he's sitting there with Qui-Gon saying, I dreamed I was going to be a Jedi, and then it happens, and everything else that follows that same pattern, to know that what he's seeing will be real. And as we have said and will continue to say in many ways, his origin and his driving force are love, are this capacity for love and this desire for attachment to the people in his life he cherishes, his mother, Padme, and eventually Luke, his children, Luke and Leia, who represent not only a paternal bond, but 
literally the fruits of his love with Padme. That's what makes him so compelling. That's so interesting. And so when he says here, mom, this is when they're having dinner together. She doesn't want him to participate in the pod race. It's dangerous. It's scary. She says, he says, mom, you say the biggest problem in this universe is nobody helps each other. Darth Vader is sitting there saying, the problem in the universe is that people don't help each other. That's kind of cool. That's kind of an incredible thing that we get to witness. And even in his darkest moments, when he is turning, when the seduction is underway, like in, he's saying to Padme, well, we could just rule the universe, just the two of us. We could just decide for everyone. And you're like, oh my God, well, you're just describing galactic fascism. Right. Not great. Even then, though, <laughs> he is still driven, at least in part, there's a kernel of it still, by this desire to aid and protect the people that he cares about. And Shmi recognizes this. Shmi, his mother, unnamed in the first film. We don't learn her name until the second movie. (laughs) Hilarious. She says he was meant to help you. That's what she says to Qui-Gon. She sees it too, just like Qui-Gon is going to start to see the role that Anakin has to play. Meant to because the force, because the prophecy of him being the chosen one, deemed it so, maybe sure, yeah, but also because it is actually fundamentally in his nature to want to help. Fascinating. You should be proud of your son, Qui-Gon tells Shmi, who we don't know is Shmi at this point. <laughs> he gives without any thought of reward. Yes. Clearly, that will change yes. and is not in any way how we perceive Darth Vader in the original trilogies. A lot of interesting questions here, philosophical, about nature and nurture. I think you can make the case that, yet again, here is another example of the Jedi Council, like, mishandling something. Mm -hmm. If they had kind of understood what drives Anakin, rather than just consistently, like, criticizing him about his fears and his loves, maybe they would have been able to hold on to him. That's really interesting to think about, not just like within this character, but within your own life. The ways that your life can branch off because of the way someone might treat you or the way you respond to a situation. He'll eventually become, of course, like a mass galactic murderer, arrogant, complacent, absolutely driven by pain and hubris, thirsty to serve the emperor. I think that's another thing that's really fascinating, too. We don't really think about the way Darth evolves even through the original trilogies. Mm -hmm. He is such a minion in the first movie and then really becomes a a force in his own right over the next two films. Qui-Gon quite quickly recognizes something special about him. There's something about that boy, he tells Obi-Wan. And he senses that there is something about Anakin, some role that he has to play. And he can tell that he's powerful and he thinks it's strange that someone so powerful should just come across their path like this. If Anakin had grown up in the Republic, of course, he would have been plucked out of obscurity much Mm -hmm. earlier. The blood test would have been done. More on that in a bit. (laughs) Um, And he would have been trained. Yes. But instead he fell off the map, ended up in Tatooine in this backwater. His Hogwarts letter never arrived. But here he is plucked from obscurity by chance And Qui-Gon sees the hand of destiny at work here. Yes, and he says to Shmi, the force is unusually strong with him. And he is not shy about making bold proclamations here, right? That much is clear. Who was the father? Oh, no. Who was his father? Getting personal in a hurry here. Like, real quick. (laughs) Qui-Gi? Real quick. Quite a question. Jeez. 
Shmi, happy to share, though. And she says, folks, this is a real line in the movie. There was no father. This is a real jaw drop moment when this comes out. I carried him. I gave birth. I raised him. I can't explain what happened. Now, again, much more to come on Shmi dicking down with the midichlorians. Yeah. Stay tuned. But in this moment, right away, you're processing this and you are forced to grapple with the fact that Anakin is being presented to us as a god. Not just the chosen one of prophecy Jedi lore, but a literal Christ-like figure born from something other than just the union between a man and a woman. His literal origin is not just a mystery, but a mystery that asks viewers to recall biblical teaching. And that's a moment where you go back to the original trilogy and say, well, however I feel about the midichlorians mm-hmm. aside, the Jedi are presented to us as a religion. Yes. It's science mystical. comes into play here, too. That's right. <laughs> Let's get that blood. Let's get a blood test. Let me clean your cut and steal your blood. Very tough look, I think, for Qui-Gon Jinn. <laughs> but listen, you have to do what you have to do. He sends the blood sample, beams the blood sample over to mm-hmm. Obi-Wan on the ship. They run the test. His count is off the charts. Higher than anyone ever recorded. Again, more on midichlorians very, very soon. This is a really important moment, I think, in the narrative history of Star Wars because, as you said, the Force is presented in mystical terms. Jedi are seen as like a religious order. And here for the first time, we get a kind of really earthbound biological basis for what to this point has been legitimately like magical powers. Shmi when talking about her beloved son, says he doesn't know greed. Uh And there's a difference between greed and desire, but that is a very thin line indeed. Thin as the Padawan's little Obi-Wan braid (laughs) hanging down. That balancing act is part of his journey from the very beginning. Uh The push and pull is inside of him. Even now, he's driven by fear, he's driven by love, and those things will push the choices he has to make right to the fore. I mean, like, why are we taking this kid into pitched battles in the first place, Qui-Gon? Can we talk about this? Like, child endangerment laws are just being broken across the galaxy with Sit this. in that cockpit. Don't move. Wink, wink, nod, nod. You'll be safe there. No, we won't. So long before the battle, we have the Padres, right? right? And Anakin, guided by the Force, Qui-Gon's first lesson to trust it, to use it, wins the Padres. Some catastrophes along the way that help him, certainly. And when you get that little moment before the race of Qui-Gon guiding him, it really is interesting to think about what a future for Anakin would have been like if Qui-Gon had lived and he actually had been able to take him on as his Padawan. And he, someone who believed in him fully and didn't operate from the origin point that Obi-Wan does, which is, why don't you listen to the council? Something's clearly off with this kid if he had been allowed to train him. And so these, when you return to this movie after reliving the entire series— An exchange like that, however brief it is, really stands out as one of those moments that you're highlighting these forks in the road in a person's life where you say, what if something could have been different? Then we get the race itself, which is a really good sequence to discuss for a minute or two here in terms of the purpose of the scene. Yes, it shows us something about Anakin's ability. Sure. Okay. It serves that function in the plot. But that is not why it's in the movie. 
It's there as a 13-minute showcase for all the new technological toys that Lucas wanted to display. I mean, I think it's clearly, again, Lucas loves car culture. Uh-huh. Loves, loves, loves yes. car culture. And also loves to show off the tech, right? Absolutely. Those are two things. He is, at his heart, a tinkerer. Set up the merch, set up the video games. I respect all that. All of that stuff. Get that Tuscan Raider connective tissue. And think Job about- Job of the hut. There's a lot of parallels here with- Ani, building his pod racer, he wants to show what it can do. He wants to show it off. It's the same here with Lucas. Right. He has been, sorry, slaving over this movie, pushing technology to its utmost limit. And he wants to display what it's capable of. And he wants to really wow people. You know, I think it's, you know, when you listen to the commentaries of the original trilogy when they released the updated editions, the constant theme there is Lucas saying, oh, it's all the stuff that I wanted to do. It's like I want, mm-hmm. they were supposed to be a city all the way here. You're supposed to see it all the way back. It's just a matte painting, but now we can do it. Mm-hmm. I want to have Jabba come out. Right. I want to have him come out to the Millennium Falcon and walk out, but we couldn't do it. And now he can do all the things that he's always dreamed of. Yes. And he wants, he wants to flex. He wants to flex. He wants to show it to you in detail. Very well put. After he shows it to us in detail. <laughs> Shmi says to Anakin, you have brought hope to those who have none. And that idea right there, hope, yeah. centrals the entire saga. We get the origin of it here, or one of many origins of it. Think of all of the times that this idea of hope, this theme will recur throughout the story. Leia's original plea yeah. to Obi-Wan. Think of Jin in Rogue One saying, we have hope, rebellions are built on hope. Think of Poe later on in the new movie saying, we are the spark that will light the fire, that will burn the First Order down. Think of the homie Holdo talking about the downtrodden, how the downtrodden place their hope in the resistance's symbol, the power of that symbol, what it means for people. Think of the very heart of what the Force actually is and how people talk about it, whether they're Jedi or not, how everyday regular people in this galaxy talk about the Force as this ever-present source of aid and assistance of, and hope that's there to help you lead the way. Well, uh, you win your bet, and Qui-Gon gets to take Ani home. He is now free, and he will be trained as a Jedi. Our meeting was not a coincidence, he tells Shmi. And she's has like, to stay behind. She's like, that's what I thought, too. <laughs> they have real. There's a little, a little, spark. A little spark there. The shoulder touch. I'm telling you. The way he kind of scoops chemistry. her off her mouth before the pod race. Nothing happens by accident, he continues. And here— Again, one of our favorite things to talk about and favorite recurring themes in fantasy and sci-fi stories, choice versus destiny, agency versus fate. Is your path determined by some master hand or do you get to decide what your fate will be? And is it somewhere in between? Does fate place you on a path and then it's your decisions that allow you to carry some mission to its completion? Does the force control or does it guide? This path is in place before you, Shmi tells Anakin. The choice is yours alone. The force, the universe, the prophecy might have brought Anakin and Qui-Gon together, but Anakin is going to be the one who decides whether to proceed, just as he's the one who's going to decide whether to turn on his master, Uh side with Palpatine, Uh kill the younglings, et cetera, et cetera, on and on. There is, of course, a sense of inevitability about Anakin not only because of the prophecy, but by its very nature, yes. a prequel. Right. You know where it's takes going. the suspense out of it to a certain extent because you just understand this character 
is going to end up at a certain place. And yet, despite all of that, there are many choices in front of Anakin, as there are many, many midichlorians <laughs> so in many. his bloodstream. So many. More than 20,000. And that is crucial. Shmi, once again, provides some much-needed wisdom. She tells Anakin, jubilant over his freedom, but also full of despair over the fact that his mother's not coming with him. She has to stay behind. And he says he doesn't want to leave her. He doesn't want things to change. And what does she tell him? You can't stop the change any more than you can stop the suns from setting. And again, here, we see this budding conflict, even though that what George Lucas said is true, and this is a positive, excited kid, we see that conflict already building in Anakin's heart over this desire for and the nature of control. When he parts with his mother, he promises her that he will return to free her. And that is going to be one of the defining promises in his his life. Sure, yeah. Frees her for like a second until she (laughs) dies in his arms and then he commits a massacre, but fine print, you know? (laughs) Mass murder, to be fair. It's not the first or the, well, not the last time for him at least, right? Anakin then is presented to the Jedi Council and given this test on Coruscant. And look, our dude, the force is strong with him and he he knows what's on Mace Windu's iPad. He's got it. A ship! <laughs> a speeder! A ship! But he's cold. Yes, he right. misses his mommy. And when Anakin asks what being afraid to lose his mother has to do with anything, Yoda says, you want to give us a little Yoda quote here? Everything. Fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. I sense much fear in you. An iconic quote, a quintessential Star Wars idea. One of the central ideas that will be present throughout the entire story and one that is fully associated with the light, the light side, identifying the perils that lead to the dark side. But... It's so much more complex than that. Why? We're going to talk about this throughout the entire podcast. Why is fear a bad thing? Fear is a human thing. Anger is too. And maybe the fear in and of itself is not what pushes Anakin or any Mm. other Force-sensitive being to the dark side. Like you were saying before, maybe it's the Jedi asking Anakin to ignore the things that make him a human being. Yeah, I think it's... You can't talk about Star Wars in any meaningful way without in some way trying to like probe the mind of George Lucas. But Uh I think that there is something to the fact that the theme of extremely talented youngsters trapped in these power structures which seek to corrupt them, just as this extremely talented filmmaker is trapped in the studio system that didn't understand him, I think that there really is something There are parallels there to be mined. That's all I'll say. Um, Anakin and R2's origin is Anakin's Astrodroid. Wonderful. Role in the battle is a really fun twist on Luke and R2 blowing up the Death Star at the end of A New Hope. At once a parallel and an inverse of that, Uh that it plays out at the same time as Obi-Wan is cutting Darth Maul in half when Obi-Wan's voice is the one that will guide Luke at that pivotal moment in episode four is a really fun synergy. One more origin point and one more source of balance clearly and purposely put there by George Lucas. We will watch your career with great interest. (laughs) The newly titled chancellor says to Anakin after the battle. And guess what? He means it, folks. He absolutely means it. We will spend much time over the course of this pod discussing the role of prophecy in general and in particular the question of 
who gets to fulfill it. And the text of it reads as follows. A chosen one shall come, born of no father, and through him will ultimate balance in the force be restored. Lot of details missing there, I think, in retrospect, but <laughs> basically holds true. Now, the born of no father part would seem to be pretty unambiguously mm-hmm. applied to Anakin, but what about the rest of it? Bringing balance? It is Anakin, yes, who does kill Palpy. Stay tuned for episode nine to find out if Palpy is indeed dead. <laughs> but does Luke not also bring balance? Mm-hmm. Does Ray not? Many others as well. Could more than one thing be true at once? Love this. Could Anakin and others fulfill it together? Kind of the Azor high thing in Thrones. Yep. Something to keep in mind as we go forward. Before we continue, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Binge Mode Star Wars is presented by State Farm. State Farm agents know that sometimes life throws everything at you at once. Like a fender bender. When you're already late... When it comes to auto and home insurance, State Farm agents are there for you. Talk to one of 19,000 State Farm agents via text, over the phone, in person, or using the State Farm app. Find an agent today at statefarm.com. Today's show is also brought to you by the Google Assistant. Hey, Google, may the force be with you. The force is always with me, as long as this device has power. The Google Assistant is ready to help you get more done with just your voice. In the car, at home, and everywhere, you take your phone. A little help, hands-free. Just say, hey, Google, to get started. And now, back to binge mode. Let's chat a bit about the state of the Jedi Order. Space cops. So fans of the original trilogy had spent more than 20 years thinking about the Jedi Order. Who the Jedi used to be before they faded away. Who stood with Obi-Wan Kenobi before he became, I wonder if he means Ben. Ben Kenobi? <laughs> also, like, what happened, man? Hard living on Tatooine. Hard few years. Hard few really years at the cantina tough, for Ben. Tough couple of decades <laughs> on Tatooine for Ben. Ground that dude down oh, real quick. boy. Who learned from Yoda before he went into exile on Dagobah, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And our first glimpse of an answer to those decades-in-the-making questions comes in the form of an ambassadorial mission. Not exactly the kind of work that so many people dreamed of seeing the Jedi perform. Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan are going to the Federation ship because the Chancellor, Valorum, this is pre Palps. Shouts to Terrence Stamp, who gets to do, say, one line and then sits down disappointedly when the vote of no confidence is wielded against him. He's got like two and a half lines. Sent them to address the trade blockade. Interesting quote from George Lucas in the oral history about the role of Jedi at this point in their history. Quote, they aren't policemen. They aren't soldiers. They're mafia dons. They come in and sit down with the two different sides and say, okay, now we're going to settle this. The Jedi weren't meant to fight wars. That's the big issue in the prequels. Is it? Man, it's, it's wild sometimes to, <laughs> to read George Lucas' comments and be like, wait, what movie are you talking about? Is it? <laughs> they got drafted into service, he continues, which is exactly what Palpatine wanted. So that's the framework. That's the backdrop for how we're introduced to these space knights that we were so excited to watch and actually sucked into the bureaucracy just like so many other people. It is amusing, though, that Obi-Wan's first words are, I have a bad feeling about this, which is 
simultaneously like a meta self own. <laughs> and also, of course, a nod to yes. Star Wars lore. We hear a version of that line so often. We begin here with both an omen and with a nod to the past and the future alike with this line that serves as this instant connection to the rest of the saga as some version of that line appears in literally every single Star Wars movie. The opening exchange between Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon functions in this way, preying on our anxieties about rewinding the story, encouraging us to just enjoy what's happening Uh right now, like live in this moment. Qui-Gon responds to Obi-Wan's concerns by saying, don't center on your anxieties, Obi-Wan. Keep your concentration here and now where it belongs, adding, be mindful of the living force, young Padawan. Again, an interesting meta commentary, just, hey, man, just enjoy what we're doing right now. But also... One of many examples of negging a Jedi who kind of is sensing that something bad is going to happen. Anytime someone's like, you know, I think something, uh, there's another hand at play. I'm not sure. Nah, (laughs) just stop being afraid of stuff. This is a reminder that the Force, like the story, is living, fluid, constantly evolving. And that can be scary, but there's something energizing too about it, especially if you remember that this is an energy that you can tap into and then doing so is really the entire point of being a Jedi and, in fact, maybe this entire story. Qui-Gon, like the old Obi-Wan we meet in A New Hope, is all too happy to show us that one of a Jedi's key tools is mind control. Easily manipulates Boss Nas into giving him what he needs, what he wants, and he will continue to deploy this throughout the film. Not successful on Watto, by the way. I cannot be tricked. <laughs> Always fascinating to think about how mind control is represented and deployed in a fantasy story. It's a Jedi tool here. It's something that the heroes, the nominal good guys, regularly use to achieve their ends. Yeah. But in numerous other stories, think Harry Potter, The Imperious Curse, right? Jessica Jones with Kilgrave, Clockwork Orange, The Prisoner, X-Men, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It can occasionally be a tool of the hero, but it's often presented as a weapon that you should fear. A hideous violation of a human code. And again, this taps into that idea of balance and this key distinction between the Jedi and the Sith, who are both ultimately using the Force, tapping into the Force. Well, what is the difference often? It comes down to intention. And who gets to decide whether an intention is pure? That's an interesting question that we're going to be asking ourselves often. Yeah, and in a lot of ways, the the Jedi are kind of like a law unto themselves. It's their own personal compass that allows them to decide whether they can use mind control on somebody or like with our friend Jar Jar as they're uh, going through the ocean's core in Naboo, concussing him and making him pass out. (laughs) And Obi-Wan's like, yeah, it was a little much. You think? But like, we get a little taste of what makes Qui-Gon really an interesting character and a character, like, frankly, I wish we had spent more time with, which is that He's the rogue. Mm-hmm. He's not he's the he's not the rules guy. He's the person who's like, I think that this is the chosen one, and I think we should pursue it. I think the Sith are back. I'm going to make bold proclamations and kind of cut through the inertia that has taken over not just the galactic political sphere, but also the way we as Jedi operate. Like I'm a man of action, and I'm just going to do things. And I think that's really interesting. 
not just in and of itself, but as a person who is ostensibly a teacher mm-hmm. of younger wannabe Jedi. Yes. Nice thought-provoking moment at the dinner table exchange between Kargon and Anakin when Anakin asks, are you a Jedi because of your laser sword? <laughs> Precious. And the following exchange ensues. Perhaps I killed a Jedi and took it from him. I don't think so. No one can kill a Jedi. Really wonderful, sad delivery here. I wish that were so. It's brutal. First of all, just feel compelled to note here that Jedi lose their lightsabers like literally all the time. They never got the cereal Pharrell. Can you can you can you drop part of your arm? Why why is water it, dancing? Why lesson? is it that it took until Nintendo for people to realize that what you need is a little strap on the control I mean, on the on. lightsaber on, folks. that you then tie around your wrist yeah, like, and then cinch it tight? Yeah, like so- how simple is that? I just think that they're losing them enough that seeing a laser sword on someone's belt means nothing because you could have picked it up on the the bottom of any air shaft. But anyway, more importantly, that exchange, that really heart-wrenching exchange, not only foreshadows Qui-Gon's death in this film, but his ensuing pursuit of immortality, which will play a key role. We're going to talk about that a little more later. And then the knowledge that he will pass on to Yoda and Obi-Wan. And of course... Of course, this foreshadows something absolutely elemental to the story. Anakin's obsession with conquering death. A driving force in his turn to the dark side as he fears that he's going to lose Padme the way he lost his mother. In a way, this film and the prequels asks a pretty interesting question about the Jedi. Should they be serving any sort of government? Mm -hmm. And this is a question that Qui-Gon poses Yoda in Star Wars Age of the Republic comics. It is a question that The Last Jedi asks numerous times, or the Force itself, the way he speaks to Anakin about a Jedi's life being hard, speaks to a certain sense of the burden he bears. Yes. And Qui-Gon's, as we just stated, really a different dude. He's got that independent spirit. He's a roguish figure. Even this like side bet that he makes for Anakin's freedom feels like something that Yoda would not traffic in. Absolutely would reject this kind of thing. Also the very, the kind of, yes, Watto cannot be mind controlled, but like Qui-Gon really tries. I can still run him too. yeah, Yeah, which again feels like a thing that Yoda would really frown at. Then there's Obi-Wan. This is also the origin in our lives for Obi-Wan, someone unlike Qui-Gon we had all of this exposure to and mm-hmm. experience with. Ewan McGregor studying Alec Guinness's role, trying to match it, really honoring how important that performance and that character was to so many people. Obi-Wan is mostly in Qui-Gon's shadow in the first half of the film. He's just hanging out back at the ship, receiving blood samples. What's this, a, bu- a blood sample? Like taking phone calls and receiving blood samples. It's tough. But in a way, it's very fitting for an apprentice, and it will be a fitting platform for him to emerge from to take on a larger role in the story. The moment, though, that he meets Anakin Skywalker, when they shake hands on the starship, it is... Chilling. It really is. There is such a palpable innocence and precociousness and joy there on Anakin's side and so much heartache ahead. And then we go with these people from the Jedi perspective to Coruscant, first mentioned in the EU novel Heir to the Empire. We get to the Jedi Temple and it... There's no other way to say it. It just looks like a bunch of joints, right? It's like four regular joints and then a big fatty in the middle. We see you, George. We approve. And here in a really 
thrilling moment. We get to meet Yoda and yes. see him really unlike we've ever seen him before. Much more mobile with a lot more to say and really at the height of his power and influence. We also meet Mace Windu, noted swordsman. Reasonable to say that one response that you as a viewer have basically everyone but Yoda and Obi-Wan and Anakin and Sidious in the movie is, hey, that's not a character from the original movies. I bet that person dies. Right. Yeah. And guess what? That's what happens. Mace Windu noted swordsman <laughs> does die. When, when Qui-Gon is addressing the council, he tells them about his suspicion that the lightsaber wielder that he encountered on Tatooine, this is when Darth Maul accosts them, indicates the return of the Sith. And Mundi responds by yeah, saying, Mundi, come on, my dude. That's impossible. <laughs> <laughs> Says impossible. The Sith have been extinct for a millennium. Now, we're going to get to that extinction for a millennium from the Sith perspective in a few minutes here and talk about that at length in the pods to come. But from the Jedi perspective here, consider how remarkable this yeah. is, including what Mace Windu says next, which is, I do not believe that the Sith could have returned without us knowing. Well, they have, and they did. And the fact that the Jedi are so ignorant to what is unfolding it's, it's around them. It's honestly wild. From, and again, this is the origin point for us to this fabled Jedi order. And they're just wrong, whiffing left and right, right away. Yoda, at least acknowledges that the dark side is hard to see. There's an opacity there that makes it difficult. But the general response here speaks to a colossal flaw in the Jedi Order and one that will ultimately be a key part of their undoing. Yeah, it's like, forget about Maul and Palpy, right? Who they have at least some reason to not know about. Dooku was trained by Yoda and he's out there and he's not a Jedi. Really interesting that the Jedi just miss this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, Qui-Gon tells the council about it. Anakin, says he's encountered aversions <laughs> around the force and that he's encountered a boy with the highest concentrations of middies he's ever seen. The mids are off the charts. <laughs> I think, it there's is a, possible. I think there's an ointment for that. Yeah, it is possible, he says, in an actual line of dialogue from this movie, he was conceived by the midichlorians. I can't believe that's real. Much like Darth Plagueis <laughs> created life. Windu says, you refer to the prophecy of the one who will bring balance to the force. You believe it's this boy? Mm -hmm. And Qui-Gon briefly faints at not presuming, but Yoda gets it. But you do. Reveal your opinion is, Qui-Gon tells them that he has no doubt that finding Anakin was destiny, the will of yes. the force. He is certain that Anakin is the chosen one and certain he was meant to find them. Certain he must also be trained. Again, though, much like the news of the Sith, this is met with skepticism. And the way that it is met with skepticism is highly notable. By definition, those two things are linked, right? right? Origin points spawn other origin points. Everything is connected. That's part of how they talk about the Force and life, the energy that binds all things. If the Jedi don't want to see or can't recognize that the Sith are back, why would they be inclined to recognize a prophetic hero destined to bring balance to something that they don't think is out of balance? The Windu-Yoda deliberations occur, and for now, at a bit of a remove, but we get to see Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon kind of debate yes. what just happened in the council. And I think it's a very interesting thing to consider because the council has said, you can't train Anakin for two reasons. For one, he's too old, which I think is a really 
interesting. So you find this Force-sensitive youngster who's yeah. like a couple years past the, the due date and you can't train him now? Wait till y'all meet Luke. You can't train him now. <laughs> and you wonder where the Sith come from. Yep. Yeah. You're just like, I can't train him. And of course, Obi-Wan, more of the rules guy, is imploring his master to just not go against the will of the council and Qui-Gon. I will do what I must. Again, wish we had spent more time it. with this dude. When and how conviction and single-mindedness lead to action and when they lead to missteps of consequences fascinating to consider, not just in the story, but in life. Again, as with so many other things, the Sith and the Jedi are legitimately two sides of the same coin here. They are the same coin. What is the motivation? Is it selflessness or selfishness? Is it serenity or passion? And when does a person given no other option mm -hmm. turn to the dark side? Their refusal to sanction Anakin's training leads to Qui-Gon declaring this time in front of Anakin with him present to hear it that he is the chosen one and Yoda says, clouded. Clouded, the boy's future is. Now, to be clear, clouded, the present is for the Jedi too. They can't get their arms around what's happening at all, any of it. And that's in some ways relatable and okay because the future should be clouded. You shouldn't be able to say right. that you know how everybody's life is going to unfold, that it's determined by something other than the choices that those people are going to make by the words in a prophecy or by someone else's dictate. Qui-Gon insists on training him directly, taking him on as his Padawan learner, giving up Obi-Wan, says he's ready for the trials because the Jedi Code prohibits taking two apprentices at the same time. And we start to get into this idea of the codes again, this rigid structure for both the Sith and the Jedi that dictates so much of what they do. And Mace Windu's like, now is not the time for this. I mean, like, he's got a point. Does he? I mean— Could there be anything more important than the chosen one and the future and balance is, of the Force in I the mean, entire universe? Naboo is literally being, like, starved into submission by an illegal aggression of the Trade Federation, which was, like, why they were sent there. They accomplished, like, almost nothing of their actual goal. And, like, yes, it's interesting. We have the kid. Great. Can we just press pause on that for a second and, like, figure out the Naboo thing? Can we do that? My note is maybe that wouldn't be happening in Naboo if you realize that the soon-to-be emperor were well, engaging I mean, in a massive bout of political theater the case. to usher in the end that he seeks. We get a quintessential Star Wars moment when Obi-Wan tells Qui-Gon that Anakin is dangerous and Qui-Gon says, from your point of view. Later, of course, Obi-Wan will use a similar line from a certain point of view. On Luke, when he's justifying why he withheld crucial information, such as Darth Vader is your father. <laughs> <laughs> These are actually the really satisfying moments yeah. in the prequel movies, where we see the origin points that become endpoints or that become loops and how this history informs the future, how past behavior informs the present. That kind of stuff is really fun. His fate is uncertain, Qui-Gon says. He has full conviction in the prophecy and in Anakin's role in bringing balance to the Force, but also has full conviction that the Jedi are wrong to think that they can see all ends. He's not quite that arrogant despite his certainty about Anakin. Your focus determines your reality, he tells Anakin again. He's teaching him already. He counsels him on the midichlorians, listening to their wisdom, learning 
how to tap into the force, priming him to focus on the import of the decisions that he is going to make. And then we get the duel. Yeah, we get the duel, which is, I think, unambiguously the highlight of this movie, probably. Obi-Wan using Qui-Gon's lightsaber after Darth Maul strikes the teacher down, signifying the transition Mm -hmm. from student to teacher, apprentice to master, and in his dying minutes, which, by the way, like, through the chest with a lightsaber. Qui-Gon hanging on for that final chat. (laughs) Tells Obi-Wan, train Anakin. He is the chosen one. He will bring balance to the Force. And this is, of course, the origin of Obi-Wan's role as Anakin's mentor and master. The source of his loyalty is his master Qui-Gon, as much to Anakin, his student, to himself. Even as true affection for him blooms in time. And Yoda, again, is like, I'm against this. Does not want it. Grave danger, I fear, in his training, he says. But what does he do other than tell his charges not to train Anakin, fueling their defiance, and then sensing that defiance undercuts his own judgment by being like, fine, okay, do it. In the span of seconds. It's seconds. Wild to me. He goes from no to I agree with you. The council does in like 10 seconds. A wonder that the Sith were able to return with that kind of leadership (laughs) on the Jedi side. And so let's talk about the Sith. Our first glimpse of Lord Sidious comes in hologram form. Chatting with the Trade Federation fellas, asking for guidance on the Jedi Knights currently aboard their ship. And there's zero mistaking him. This is the emperor from the original trilogy, clearly. Now, the question of whether this is even supposed to be a secret a twist yeah, right. that we build up to for the reveal in Revenge of the Sith is kind of debated because this is in the novels. Palpatine is identified as the man who becomes, who is Sidious and becomes the emperor. That is out there. That is known. Now, his voice is the same. You could say, though, for a whole generation of purely <laughs> yeah. moviegoers who don't have, who yeah. never tapped into the expanded universe, now legacy canon. Perhaps, right, right, right. Maybe they wouldn't know. But if you don't realize within like 10 seconds, you're watching a different movie. The second that we see his chin, even though it's not that like wrinkly, scrotal-like structure that we come to expect from the emperor, we recognize him immediately. And he... Not Darth Maul, who was uh, at the center of the marketing campaign, this frightening visage, this creature for nightmares. Sidious is the Phantom Menace, the titular Phantom Menace, the threat that is beginning slowly to reveal itself and loom over all of life. Hilarious moment when Palpy's hologram cuts out during the invasion. (laughs) You're breaking up as he's talking to Queen Amidala and then his voice goes down and it's like, oh, wait, that's Darth Sidious, isn't it? Sidious's line to the Federation leaders as the invasion is beginning is, Queen Amidala is young and naive. We'll find controlling her will not be difficult. Key idea here, as it both foreshadows how he's going to attempt to control and manipulate Anakin successfully to turn him to the dark side and how he like so many villainous characters and evil figures bent on gaining power and influence, miscalculates what those he deems beneath him are actually capable of. And this is a quintessential fantasy idea where the weakness that, what is perceived as weakness is in fact a strength. Uh, And we're introduced to Darth Maul, Darth Sidious' apprentice, when the Federation loses Amidala, not realizing she and the Jedi have made an emergency landing on Tatooine. And he's absolutely horrific to gaze upon, a face from nightmares. Literally, concept designer Ian McCaig said he designed him based on a creature from his own nightmares. Viceroy is replied to the meat could, now there were two of them. 
Well, as we'll learn, that is clearly the point. Yes, that is the point. So let's get into a little Sith lore here. The Sith Code, the counterpart to the Jedi Code, preaches passion as a driving force. Quote, peace is a lie. There is only passion. Through passion, I gain strength. Through strength, I gain power. Through power, I gain victory. Through victory, my chains are broken. The force shall free me. Sounds pretty good. Candidly, you see the appeal. Sounds pretty good, I gotta say. (laughs) You see the appeal. I like it. I like what I'm hearing from the Sith. Do you have any pamphlets (laughs) eager to read more? The code dates back to 6,900 BBY before the Battle of Yavin. That's how years are dated in the Star Wars universe. Before a Battle, Battle of, Yavin, of Yavin, a.k.a. when the first Death Star was blown yes. up. The first line there in that code is a direct renouncement of the Jedi Code's emphasis on peace. And then we get into the famous— I'm ready to debate the rule of two. Rule of two, a Sith philosophy first coined by Darth Bane. Darth Bane. Hello. You only live in the dark. I was born in it. We need a Tom Hardy like mashup here. The sole survivor of a long ago war against the Jedi, a millennium before the events of these prequel films, mandating that only two Sith Lords could exist at any point in time. Betrayal led to this rule, but think about how much it also spawned because apprentices are always killing their masters to take their place and bring on an apprentice of their own. And then you also have masters killing their apprentice as soon as they find someone who's better. Like, Sidious is just like, Anakin, can you decapitate Dooku, my current apprentice, because I think you have more skill. That will be a recurring thing that happens in the story. Lucas, in the oral history, explained the reason for the rule of two, basically amounting to the Sith are dumb, just like the Jedi. He said, quote, the Sith ruled the universe for a while, 2,000 years ago. Each Sith has an apprentice, but the problem was each Sith Lord got to be powerful. Yeah, that's kind of the thing they're working for, right? And the Sith Lords would try to kill each other because they all wanted to be the most powerful. So in the end, they killed each other off, and there wasn't anything left. So the idea is that when you have a Sith Lord and he is an apprentice, the apprentice is always trying to recruit somebody to join him because he's not strong enough usually so that he can kill his master. That's why I call it a rule of two. There's only two Sith Lords. There can't be any more because they kill each other. They're not smart enough to realize that if they do that, they're going to wipe themselves out which is exactly what they did. This is hysterical. <laughs> Imagine if Voldemort had been like, I can only have one Death Eater. <laughs> like, what? Uh, and by the way, we'll go into more detail on the rule of two in later episodes. And the rule of one. Um, Maul's battle with Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan, again, the highlight of the film. Yes. The double-sided lightsaber oh, reveal incredible is an incredible moment. aesthetic moment and also like a great, a great thematic through line from the original trilogy, which is the Empire just had the cool shit, the man. Cool looking yeah. stuff. Yes. Everything they had was cooler. And our rebels are always ragtag. Their stuff is mismatched. Their ships are like cobbled together from different parts that they get at junk places. But the Empire is sleek. These triangular ships, Darth Vader's helmet that is honestly like modeled after German World War I stormtrooper helmets. The stormtroopers themselves and that sleek armor. Doesn't protect much, but it looks good. It looks really good. <laughs> There's a real ferociousness about that duel and also the hopelessness and helplessness of Obi-Wan 
trapped behind that force field, having to watch his mentor struck down. The sensation, the absence of agency is often what leads to downfalls in this story. Mm-hmm. Maul may not be the titular menace. And again, yes. we get to spend more time with him in the animated series, various animated series. But he is still a menace. And you can tell that just from looking at him. It's clear that his, quote, death, such as it is, is the beginning of something, not the end. That another Sith will spring up in his place and that the dark side will continue its march toward its intended goal, which is domination of the galaxy. Windu tells Yoda at Qui-Gon's funeral that Maul, 100%. Guess what? Listen, I checked it out. Sith, for sure. I'm, sh- yeah. Now I'm sure. I am absolutely, red face, the whole thing looked evil, had the two-sided lightsabers. You know, the only people to do that are the Sith, 100%. Is a Sith. And then Yoda gives us the classic, always two there are, no more, no less. A master and an apprentice. Which was destroyed, Windu asks, the master or the apprentice? And then the camera pans right (laughs) Right to to Chief Palpatine. Our good friend Chief. Incredible moment in this movie. Unbelievable. (laughs) So subtle. (laughs) Oh my God. All right. A couple other things quickly before we move on. The droids are origin with two of the most important characters in the entire story. Let's leave leave aside for now the question of why Darth Vader does not recognize these droids. How about Obi-Wan? I don't remember owning any droids. You saved my life like a hundred (laughs) times. R2, our dude, we first see him on that lame Nubian royal starship and learn that he began his journey in this story in Queen Amidala's service. Fascinating. I also love that R2 gets more plaudits for his role in saving the queen's ship than freaking Chewbacca does (laughs) for the Battle of Yavin. Where was Chewie's medal? Where is it? Where is it, folks? Not only does R2 get credit, he gets a rub down from Padme. Hello. Honestly, hilarious moment in the film when one of the decoys who we're going to talk about later, who's pretending to be Kira Knightley, Knightley. a 15-year-old Kira Knightley, folks, (laughs) is like Padme, aka the actual queen, go clean the droid. It's a moment that exists only. (laughs) And I mean only. Only, and I mean solely to give us that visual the mirror of, image. of Padme in robes, kneeling down to squeak, 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 rub a rag on R2-D2's body, giving us that mirror image of that we get from A New Hope of Leia doing the same exact thing to the same exact role. Incredible. Love and origin. C-3PO's origin, we learn that he is Anakin's creation. Anakin is not only Luke and Leia's father, he is... 3PO's father, too, he built him by his own hand for a very sweet reason. He wanted the protocol droid to be able to help his mother. 3PO, some funny moments, proclaiming he'll never go on a starship. Hilarious. Also, the symbolism of Anakin's relationship to machines, his tech savviness, his desire to build, to toy, to experiment, given what he is going to physically become. Very interesting to watch that play out. The widening of the world. This is fascinating to me because, you know, like this is stuff that existed. I didn't get when I watched Star Wars, A New Hope, like when it said episode four, A New Hope, Mm -hmm. I never thought, what about episodes one, two? I literally never thought that stuff just escaped me. And I think there's really something fascinating about the, the way Star Wars works on these two tracks, which is on the one hand, this like really 
in the weeds story about like yes. tax law. Right. And on the other hand, this almost purely heartfelt and very simplistic story about good and evil. Yes. These two things existing at the same time. So remember like two hours ago when we <laughs> said there was one kind of charitable way to think about this? Let's talk about that quickly. Now, on the one hand, obviously, as we've said, yes, the bureaucratic, political, sociological nature of the story bummed out a lot of people. They didn't want to focus on the Trade Federation. They didn't want to focus on taxes. But let's look at it from George Lucas's point of view, from the view of the creator, the person whose intent was to widen that world, and consider the implications of hinging the beginning of the prequel trilogy and thus his entire epic to these political and sociological matters as well as the metaphysical, as well as the mythological. Let's consider the words of another George, George R.R. Martin, Mm. creator of A Song of Ice and Fire, who has said the following about J.R.R. Tolkien and Lord of the Rings. He said this long ago in an interview with Rolling Stone, quote, ruling is hard. This was maybe my answer to Tolkien, whom, as much as I admire him, I do quibble with. Lord of the Rings had a very medieval philosophy that if the king was a good man, the land would prosper. We look at real history, and it's not that simple. Tolkien can say that Aragorn became king and reigned for 100 years, and he was wise and good, but Tolkien doesn't ask the question, what was Aragorn's tax policy? Guess what? (laughs) Did he maintain a standing army? What did he do in times of flood and famine? And what about all the orcs? By the end of the war, Sauron is gone, but all the orcs aren't gone. They're in the mountains. Did Aragorn pursue a policy of systemic genocide and kill them? Even the little baby orcs and their little baby cradles. Well, in this movie, George Lucas is asking his version of yes. what was Aragorn's tax policy. And there is an impulse and a desire there that we actually really respect to build a fully realized world full of myriad things. And yes, many of those myriad things are exceedingly dull. They're so dull. But myriad things that make real life real. You can think about Star Wars as Lucas's version of Edward Gibbons's classic, The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. And this is what he's giving us, is this very, from a certain point of view, long-winded and overly detailed story about how a republic turns into a dictatorship. In the Phantom Menace oral history on StarWars.com, Lucas says, my decision to make episode one was more or less driven by technology. The first three Star Wars films were designed very, very carefully to be done cheaply. We didn't go to any big cities. Didn't have a lot of costumes. Didn't have a lot of extras. We didn't have a lot. He's still complaining about it. I can't believe it. We didn't. He's like complaining, you complaining, Star Wars, complaining. Dude, you're good. We didn't have a lot of things that cost money on a movie like that. With episode one, I didn't want to tell a limited story. I had to go into politics and the bigger issues of the Republic and that sort of thing. I had to go into bigger issues. Episode one wasn't doable for a long time, so I waited until we had the technology to do it. Still, that means long before we get to Jedi Council meetings, we get Naboo Council meetings and whoo! Rough. What are we talking about? (laughs) At least there is conflict between the stated goal of the principles and the ultimate state of things. It's right there in the title of the franchise. War. And yet, Amidala says, I will not condone a course of action that will lead us to war. Guess what? We're going there anyway. Ultimately, though, the politics are a gateway to that larger story, as Qui-Gon says when he's trying to convince Queen Amidala, really, at this point, her decoy, Sabe, to go with them to Coruscant to address the Senate. He says, there's something else behind all this, Your Highness. Sidious, the Sith, the battle between the dark and the light, the battle for balance and the Force. And it's also powerful— despite Jar Jar's how wooed interruptions, 
In a moment when Padme and Shmi are interacting during the sandstorm on Tatooine and Padme's stunned to discover that slavery still exists in the galaxy because the Republic's anti-slavery laws are meant to prevent it. And Shmi says the Republic doesn't exist out here. We must survive on our own. Whether it is an entire mystical galaxy or one town in our own actual world, that right there is the one of the primary functions of telling a story, to reveal our biases, to challenge us to think about how our perspective shapes our life and how we think about other people's lives. Star Wars, where so many beings are united by their belief in one thing, the Force is no different. They still all have their different perspectives. On Coruscant, we begin to see how the role of politics in the film is a conduit for Palpatine's path. He is going to use the deadlock in the Senate to vault himself as the one strong leader who can cut through the bullshit and get stuff done in order to become the emperor of the empire. He needs to gain control of the Senate so that he can eventually turn the entire galaxy to as well. Everything happening on and around Naboo is really the opening gambit in his rise to power. With Amidala, he plays the greater good card. Chancellor Valorum, not in control anymore. There are financial interests, the Trade Federation interests that have turned this once fine house of politics into basically a rigged game. They need to force the election of a stronger leader. Hmm. Hmm. Who can exercise control, cut through the red tape, Hmm. and seek justice. He manipulates her because she is a ruler desperate to save her people. And she doesn't have time to have the Senate send a fact-finding mission to Naboo to figure out what's going on. She knows what's going on. And Senator Palpatine uses that urgency to get what he wants. He's the devil on her shoulder. Literally a voice right there in her ear right there in the pod with her in front of the Senate. A surprise, to be sure, but a welcome one, he says, <laughs> when he's nominated to be the chancellor. And what a ham, an incredible performance. Amazing. He says this, by the way, while wearing a plush velvet bathrobe. It's made an amazing look. Absolutely crushing it. Jason. Yes. There was no father. I carried this podcast. <laughs> Likely I gave, story. I gave birth, I raised it. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. <laughs> I, I can't that. explain what happened. Hey, sure. I guess I have to buy it. What other choice do I have? Maybe you can explain it? I'm going to try. Please gather the younglings. Gather the Padawan learners. Head to the Jedi Temple. That's right. Teach us everything we need to know about midichlorians. Those horny bastards. Folks. Let's talk about mids. I'm not talking about the weed that's not that good that you get in the middle of the country. I'm talking about midichlorians. In 2009, showrunner Damon Lindelof, as his hit television show Lost was nearing its end, told a live audience at the now-defunct Los Angeles comic book shop Meltdown what answers he felt his story should and should not answer. Quote, There are certain questions about the show that I'm very befuddled by, like, what is the island or what do the numbers mean? We're going to be explaining a little more about the numbers, maybe significantly more about the numbers. But what do you mean by what do the numbers mean? What is a potential answer to that question? I feel like you have to be very careful about entering into midichlorian territory. Mm. I grew up on Star Wars. I've seen the Star Wars movies hundreds of times. 
I can recite them chapter and verse. And never once did anyone ever say to me, or did it occur to me to say, what is the force exactly? This essentially is the philosophical distinction between two taxonomies of science fiction, hard sci-fi and soft sci-fi. And it's through this lens that we're going to try to examine midichlorians. But first, what are they? Just as Qui-Gon Jinn explained to young Anakin Skywalker, midichlorians are sentient microscopic life forms which reside inside the cells of all living things in a symbiotic relationship with their host organism. Midichlorians are connected to the energy field which binds all things together, commonly known as the Force. When midichlorians are present in significant enough numbers, they allow their host to perceive and interact with and harness the Force. This means that any host, even animals, as long as their count is high enough, can be, at least according to previous canon, Force-sensitive. For instance, we have the Vornsker a native to the forest planet of Merkur, was a jaguar-like nocturnal predator that used the force to locate its prey. It found force-sensitive beings, Jedis included, hard to resist and very tasty. The Vornster's primary quarry, the Isalamiri, was like a furry tree-dwelling iguana. Also force-sensitive, the Isalamiri evolved a novel defense against their hunters, the ability to surround themselves with an area within which the force could not be used. The more Isalamari in an area, the larger the anti-force bubble, and this made the forests of Merkur a popular hideout for smugglers. Pirates, another galactic scum looking to evade Jedi entanglements. Anakin's count, as we heard, according to the blood test run by Obi-Wan, is more than 20,000 midichlorians per cell, which we, again, quickly learn is the highest ever recorded, surpassing even that of Master Yoda, leading Qui-Gon to believe that Ani is the Jedi savior destined to bring balance to the Force. Release all the blood tests immediately. We deserve the right to know what they are. All that said, there's actually no one-to-one relationship between the amount of midichlorians in one's bloodstream, at least above a certain level that would make one Force-sensitive, and the strength of that person's Force abilities. Consider. Obi-Wan more than a match for Anakin when the two duked it out on the volcanic planet Mustafar in Revenge of the Sith. Palpy. He had the high ground, though. (laughs) He had the high ground, that's true. But before that, even, Palpy exerted significant control over his apprentice, Anakin, despite Annie Darth's high midichlorian count. And Anakin is Darth. Became, if anything, more powerful than ever, despite being violently dismembered because he did not have the high ground in that aforementioned duel, thus having less body parts and therefore clearly less midichlorians. So midichlorians are an explanation for how force sensitivity works. But considering what we just talked about, how much does that explanation actually matter? And why is an explanation necessary? Now, here's where the question of hard sci-fi First, soft sci-fi comes in. Simply put, hard science fiction describes stories which have a basis in real science and real math. Soft sci-fi, on the other hand, is often more philosophical, tending to lean on broader sociological, anthropological, and political themes. Examples of hard sci-fi would be Xi Jinping's Three Body Problem trilogy, Andy Weir's The Martian, shouts to the potatoes on Mars, <laughs> and Ted Chiang's various short stories, Exhalation, Buy it now, it's excellent. Soft sci-fi stories include Orson Scott Card's Ender's Game, Frank Herbert's Dune, and, of course, the original Star Wars trilogy. We can think of midichlorians, then, as a hard science fiction element in a film series 
characterized by a pointed lack of such details. In fairness, though, you have to say that explanations in this medium were luxuries. Getting into how gravity works on the Death Star and why the atmosphere in a star cruiser's hangar bay doesn't shoot out into space and how blasters work and how it's possible to travel at faster than light speeds would have just bogged down the pacing. Stuff simply worked. The original trilogy depicted the Force as essentially magic, and when it's described, it's in near-mystical religious terms. In episode four, Obi-Wan tells Luke that the Force is, quote, an energy field created by all living things that, quote, binds the galaxy together. When Luke goes to train with Yoda in Empire Strikes Back, the ancient Jedi basically says exactly the same thing. Neither Obi-Wan or Master Yoda mentions, or even really hints at midichlorians. Now, in Return of the Jedi, Luke does say, quote, the Force is strong in my family, implying some kind of biological basis for the Force. But the gulf between an implied hereditary link and let's run Anakin's blood sample and see if he can go to Jedi school is wide enough that he could drive several star killer bases through it. This philosophical shift in approach, transforming the Force from something that was perceived as mystical and egalitarian in the sense that it was felt that anyone could tap into it if they trained hard and opened their minds and mastered their feelings to a phenomenon with a biological basis that you needed a blood test for, felt to many people, many critics, as something that was exclusionary, kind of cheesy, unnecessary, and, and basically simply bad. And for context, here is a Return of the Jedi story conference transcript from the making of Star Wars Return of the Jedi that features a conversation between George Lucas and Lawrence Kasdan. Kasdan asks, the Force was available to anyone who could hook into it? Lucas, yes, everybody can do it. Kasdan, not just the Jedi? Lucas, it's just the Jedi who take the time to do it. So, like many things associated with the Phantom Menace, midichlorians were and remain controversial. How you feel about them depends on how you felt when you first watched the original trilogy. Did you think, as stated above, I wonder how the Force works, or were Obi-Wan and Yoda's explanations enough? If the answer is the latter, you probably don't like midichlorians. Personally, I think if Lucas had handled midichlorians with a little more subtlety and thoughtfulness, perhaps by, and not limited to pumping the brakes after revealing their existence and not zooming directly to Anakin Skywalker is midichlorian Jesus, <laughs> uh, they maybe could have been cool. I think they could have been cool. An explanation for the Force could be cool. As presented, the midichlorians, though, really muddle the affair and create more questions than they do answers. For instance, how do the midichlorians themselves work? Yes. As we just noted, there's seemingly no direct relationship between a Force user's count and their power level. So we don't actually know how they work. Jin says they are sentient. And what does that mean? How does their sentience manifest itself? How do they get into an organism's bloodstream in the first place? And also, like, midichlorians impregnated Shmi? What? So midichlorians, as a major plot point in The Phantom Menace, episode one, are unquestionably canon. What we can question now in the post-Lucas era is, will they return, or like most of what happened in the prequels, have we all just kind of agreed to forget that they happened? Lucas planned to delve even deeper into the hidden world of the midichlorians and the workings of the Force in his plan for episodes seven through nine. He planned to introduce a new microscopic organism called the Wills, who in Lucas's words, quote, feed off the force and, quote, control the universe. Of course, a lot of fans would have hated it, Lucas says in James Cameron's book, Story of Science Fiction. 
just like they did Phantom Menace and everything, but at least the whole story from beginning to end would be told. Sounding very much like uh, <laughs> Luke Skywalker not getting to do what he wants. Um, <laughs> Disney, of course, acquired Lucasfilm and the Star Wars IP in 2012 for $4.05 billion and has since released two main series films, The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi, and two prequel films, Rogue One and Solo, colon, in very pleading fashion, a Star Wars story. Based solidly on the tone and structure of the original films with nary a midichlorian to be seen. I, for one, doubt we ever see them again. What do you think? I think they'll continue to pop up elsewhere sure, in I that so wide, too. wide, wide canon. I don't think we return to them in the movies, the primary movies. I agree. First of all, that was wonderful. Thank, Thank you, you for that. What a joy to be at the Jedi Temple with you. I'm a youngling no more. I made it through with that lesson, internalized knowledge, and my life, amazingly. <laughs> I I find myself listening to you thinking about a line from one of the bonus features on the DVD. The design director, mm. Doug Chung, said, quote, ultimately, nothing has to be really explained. It just has to look like it can work. And— 100% agree. I don't like that. I mean— That's the thing. It's like—and I get it, and it's fine, and it's true. And if the whole story abides by that logic, okay. But as we talk about so often, the rules of a fantasy or science fiction story, you have to understand how the universe functions. And once you start to recalibrate in any area to any degree— then you have to maintain that course of recalibration or you you rob people of the ability to grasp the story that you're trying to tell. So there are plenty of ways that you can wrap your mind around what midichlorians are supposed to be. And I think the point that you made is exactly right in the one that I find myself thinking of, which is, do I like the choice? No. Could I have been fine with it? Sure. The problem is that in the current execution— they don't answer the question. They, yeah, they just don't ask new ones, right? So Dave Filoni, the Star Wars Rebels showrunner, has defended midichlorians in a way that I think is really helpful. Basically saying, as a comp or a corollary, anybody could be a star athlete or a martial artist. Some people are just better able to do that. And like, if you think about midichlorians that way or even being Force-sensitive in that mm -hmm. way— and when you get to that Lucas quote, that idea that you raised about how everybody has access to the Force, which I think is like a shocking idea for a lot of people to yeah. hear and not, again, maybe the way that many people perceive what actually happened in the story or how the Force and the magic yeah. works. I really like that idea, actually. Like, that to me is what a fantasy story is all about, that anybody can make a difference. Anybody can be the chosen one. Spoiler alert for Pods to Come. That's why I I hope that Rey is not actually a Skywalker or a Solo or a Kenobi. That I love the idea of her parents being no one. Because the idea that anybody could be born and become Force-sensitive and become a Jedi is kind of the whole point to me. I will say that I, I like explanations. I love both hard and soft sci-fi. I, I think that kind of inadvertently— Star Wars pre-Disney hit on a formula which Disney has then clearly returned to, which is like the movies are one thing, kind of a soft sci-fi presentation. And if you want to get in the weeds, man, have we got this entire yeah. library of other stuff uh -huh. that you could go to, whether it's the comics, the books, the novelizations, the animated series. We've got all of that stuff that you can dive into, but the movies are going to be 
it looks cool and it works. Let's dive into a couple of those wider cannon nuggets right now. Mal. Yeah. The council has granted me permission to train you. Yes. You will be a podcaster, I promise. But first, we need to explore some nuggets. So let's roll like BB-8 through eight of our favorite insights and observations from this film. Lightning round style, you go first. Number one. Darth Maul did not die after Obi-Wan Kenobi cut him in half. After uttering just three lines in the entire movie, Maul toppled. Not the voice I was expecting either. No. Or the volume. Yeah. (laughs) Topples, lightsaber sliced, down a reactor shaft. But our dude clung to life. Many, many, many moviegoers were stunned to see Maul appear in hologram form at the end of Solo, a Star Wars story. I love that. I just love the pleading tone. It's a Star it's a Wars, Star Wars story. story. Long, long before that reveal in Solo, Maul had continued to exist outside of the primary movies in other parts of the Star Wars universe, including Star Wars, The Clone Wars, and Star Wars Rebels. Maul escaped from Naboo in a trash container. Tough look for my guy. And made his way to Lotho Minor, where he descended into madness. But affixed robotic legs and fixated on his desire to exact revenge against Obi-Wan. Eventually, Maul's brother rescued him, replaced his legs again, healed his mind. And Maul styled himself as his brother's master. They were out there. Master and apprentice. Rival Sith duo. Rule of four. They found and dueled with Obi-Wan many, many, many times, got mixed up with the Mandalorian group Death Watch. Eventually, Maul formed the Shadow Collective, a crime syndicate, overthrew the Mandalorian government. But greed wasn't a powerful ally for him because Maul's old master, Darth Sidious, had to respond at this point to Maul's growing power. Sidious killed Maul's brother and reminded Maul of that rule of two, telling him, Sorry, my guy, you are not a Sith anymore. That's me and Dooku. Maul and Dooku traded spots, imprisoned, under each other's control before eventually teaming up to try to take down Obi-Wan, their shared rival. But in time, Maul lost the Shadow Collective, lost Mandalore, and instead became the leader of Crimson Dawn, the crime syndicate that we're introduced to in Solo when we see him and Kira joining forces. Maul's journey continued for some time from there, including an effort to secure a super weapon. But eventually, in one of their myriad duels, Obi-Wan bested him at last, fully, on Tatooine, slicing his lightsaber in half and killing him. Perhaps we'll get some more of the Maul story, some more of that Maul canon in future solo movies, should such a thing ever exist, or in a solo spinoff on Disney+. Plus. I'll say this. Here's a take. Solo, a Star Wars story. Better than you remember. It's not bad. It's not bad. I kind of liked it. There are parts of it that are quite good. Yeah, I agree. Number two. Speaking of Disney+, Plus, we're officially getting an Obi-Wan show with Ewan McGregor. The show announced that this year's D23 will take place eight years after the end of Revenge of the Sith. So get ready to see a lot of Ben Kenobi hanging out on Tatooine, forgetting a new R2-D2. <laughs> One friend we might see in a show covering Obi-Wan's exile is... Qui-Gon Jinn, his former master who instructed both Yoda and Obi-Wan on the path to becoming Force Ghosts. Dope. The secret, as Qui-Gon learned and as we'll discuss at length over the course of Binge Mode Star Wars, involves absolute selflessness, 
and a balance of oneself with both the living and cosmic force. Qui-Gon initially manifested only as a disembodied voice, eventually rendering physically, as Yoda and Obi-Wan and Anakin would later do, when the planet Mortis, a force conduit, helped him project his form to Obi-Wan to revisit one of their favorite old chats, Anakin's standing as the chosen one. Imagine basically figuring out how to be immortal and just coming back to talk about the exact same thing. It just took a while to download the full resolution, and then once he got it, it was fine. (laughs) Number three. I see your force priestesses and raise you the handmaidens of Naboo. Padme's decoys play key roles in the prequels, with one, Corday, even dying in a bombing while impersonating Padme in Attack of the Clones. It's a risky job, and you know that when you take it. As we mentioned earlier, and you might not have known previously— Kira Knightley played Sabe, the main decoy in Phantom Menace, and reportedly looked so much like Natalie Portman that Knightley's own mother could not tell them apart. That sounds like PR bullshit. I can't be real. That's can fucking it? spin. Come on. <laughs> Get out of here with that. <laughs> Rose Burns, Dorme, is the main decoy, of course, in Attack of the Clones. But Sabe, Dorme, Corday, only three of the cadre of the Royal Handmaidens, a fascinating band of badasses who serve as aides, bodyguards, attendants, decoys, and more. Need help with your makeup or your hair? They're on it, Jason. They're on it. Need someone to wield a blaster? They got you. While they often bear a striking physical resemblance to the queen, they're not just lookalikes. They're highly trained in self-defense and security. And interestingly, while the handmaidens first appear in Phantom Menace and get a lot of shine in the novel Queen's Shadow, George Lucas reportedly originally considered introducing handmaiden decoys in A New Hope with Princess Leia. Number four, speaking of Padme, she ultimately wins Anakin's heart. But at one point in time, Lucas was reportedly planning to go in another direction. I love this. According to a casting rumor (laughs) in Star Blazer magazine, way back in 1985, 14 years before this movie was eventually released, Sybil Danning was supposed to play a, quote, sexy witch who seduces Anakin to the dark side. I love it. Honestly, I would like to see that movie. I know you I know you That's would. That's fucking great. <gasps> Maybe we can write the fanfic. What would we call it? Darth Dick. <laughs> the Sith's Apprentice. <laughs> Skyfucker. The Skyfucker saga. Deep Sith. <laughs> What's un- under the robe? Secret of the Sith. The Force hardens. (laughs) 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 Yeah. Number five. A few Darth Vader Easter eggs in this film, to the extent that there can be Easter eggs in a movie that is literally about the kid who becomes Darth Vader. We already talked about the great poster that came out, obviously, before the movie showing Anakin with his shadow cast mm-hmm. as Vader's signature silhouette. Then in the film, if you let the end credits play, you can hear Vader's signature breathing, that <sighs> unmistakable sound. And this is a fun one. Isaac will like this. In John Williams' score, Anakin's theme is a variation of Vader's theme, the Imperial March, from the original films. Number six, there are plenty of non-Darth Vader Easter eggs in the film as well. Among the many, here are some of our favorites. There's an E.T. in the Galactic Senate Amazing. during the vote of no confidence, a nod from Lucas to his buddy Steven Spielberg. 
on Coruscant. Both the Starship Enterprise and a spinner from Blade Runner are visible. You can barely see the Blade Runner spinner. While an Eva pod from 2001 Space Odyssey is visible in Watto's junkyard, Anakin has a small statue that bears a striking resemblance to Maz. Yes. He's in The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi in his bedroom. And you can access a hidden gag reel on the DVD options by King 11, 3, and 8, which fits Star Wars because George Lucas's debut as a feature film director came from the movie THX 1138. And in terms of in-store Easter eggs, young Greedo, long before Han shot first, is seen picking a fight with Anakin in a deleted scene. Amazing. Number seven. The question is, how much of that would you see if you only watched the Phantom Edit? The Phantom Edit is a legendary fan edit of this movie from Mike J. Nichols, originally credited to Kevin Smith, but not his though he does like it. Yeah. While it's horribly the last fan edit of this series, it was the first to really become a thing, garnering widespread media attention and even earning a mostly amiable reaction from Lucasfilm. No lawsuit, at least. Among the most notable changes, editing almost all of Jar Jar's scenes. <laughs> Very tough. <laughs> <laughs> Removing much of the political talk, shaving down the midichlorian talk, and... Nixing Anakin's yippies. (laughs) Leading to a film that is about 20 minutes shorter, even with deleted scenes added in. Number eight. When we considered names for this segment, we considered the 327 because 327 (laughs) is a recurring number in Star Wars that ultimately seemed untenable, but we can still highlight that number here. Among the many uses of 327 in the series— Qui-Gon identifies Queen Amidala's starship as a Nubian model J-327. The Vulpturine 327 is one of the pods at the pod race. And later, the Millennium Falcon will dock at Bay 327 on the Death Star and the platform 327 in Cloud City. The New Republic will have 327 senators. And the list goes on and on. Isaac, you don't want us to do 327 nuggets per episode? No? No. How about in the director's cut? No? All right. Jason? Yes. The podcast is dangerous. They all sense it. Why can't you? They sense much the same about today's winner. Every episode of our movie discussions, we're going to honor the character who rallied the troops, advanced their cause. And today, the winner of our Medal of Bravery is... It's got to be Annie, little Anakin Skywalker. Yippee! Like, sure, he eventually becomes Darth Vader, a galactic mass murderer and genocidal villain. Yeah. But before slaughtering the younglings and getting barbecued on the lava of Mustafar, he was like a good, nice kid who (laughs) was at one time thought to be the chosen one and was very innocent and selfless. It's true. And yes, sure, the guy who discovered him, Qui-Gon Jinn, who was going to be his teacher, died. And yes, Anakin had to abandon his mother, Shmi, back on Tatooine while going off to be a flyboy, okay? And also, basically, everyone is somewhere on the scale of where he thinks he's probably evil. But who among us hasn't dealt with those things, you know? We still can't deny Anya's come up in episode one. He goes from being a slave toiling under Watto's yoke to becoming a Jedi in training Padawan learner 
the apprentice of Obi-Wan Kenobi. And he's not just training, he is the actual chosen one, folks, destined to bring balance to the Force, the most powerful Jedi apprentice there is, bursting <laughs> with midichlorians. Midichlorians coming out of every orifice. So much. Falling out of him. So much that the only deduction is that the Force dicked down his mom. Very, very tough stuff. But listen, it was a tough time in Shmi's life, and the midichlorians were there for her. Also, Anakin won the pod race. Now, it might not seem like it matters in the grand scheme of things, but you saw Sebulba's ass. Disgusting. (laughs) That matters. Meets Padme, his future lover, joins in the battle against the Federation, and... Destroys the Accidentally on purpose, we don't need to talk about that. Destroys the control ship, knocking out the Wi-Fi and bringing down the droid army. Did he literally hit autopilot and then accidentally fire a shot into the reactor? Yes. But was the result victory also? Yes. Yes. Finally, and gets a better haircut than the bowl haircut Shmi was giving him on the tattooing. Fresh do. Fresh do. Got his own little braid, his own little Padawan braid. Looks great. great. Look. For our guy, Anakin Skywalker. And also, cool name, Anakin Skywalker. That's fucking great. Incredible. All right, friends. There is no civility, only podcasts. Right. As we keep telling Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher, we hope you had as much fun as we did today that you're as excited as we are to hop back into the speeder, continue to explore the galaxy, and that you'll join us again next time for our character study on Jar Jar Binks. Until then, remember, always two there are. No more, no less. A co-host and a co-host. Yippee! <laughs> hey, Mike. This is Izda from Marine. I gotta talk about the pod race on Tatooine today. Did you see this stuff, Mike? First of all, this little kid in a custom pod wins the race. All kinds of shenanigans here, Mike. I heard there were two Jedi present. They might have had a side bet going. Sebulba, who everybody thought this guy was going to win, he gets his nails polished and his toenails polished and the other stuff polished before the race, was absolutely confident. This guy had a great pod, and he gets blown up, Mike, in the final moments. There's sand people shooting stuff there, Mike. They got to look into this because I think it's pretty fishy. They're talking about this kid has, like, significant force powers, and I heard he failed a blood test, Mike, but nobody's talking about it. I'll take my hands off. Yeah, thank you.